You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Well, over the next few days, God willing, we're going to consider the last words of our Lord Jesus Christ to his people, to his servants those who understand his will. And as we stand here today, we are very grateful, aren't we, for the labours of our pioneering brethren who have unearthed the beauty and truth of the continuous historical approach to the apocalypse, deeply indebted for their great research and work. And we stand on the shoulders of these brethren as they've given to us the enlightenment having removed all the rubbish of Christianity and all the false interpretations and given us the pristine truth of this remarkable book. And we're only going to consider just a few chapters over the course of these next few days, but how powerful they are. They are very introspective chapters. They're asking us to look at our own ecclesial life and our own individual life and our own standing before Almighty God. Problem with the microphone? Up a little bit. Okay. Is that better? Thank you. I won't repeat what I just said. (laughs) The remarkable thing about this book is that there is a blessing attached to that. Revelation is the expansive dimension of God's plan for the next 2,000 years, in which he gave to his son, Jesus Christ, to execute through his angels. You know, I was reading a book many, many years ago by a church commentator on the letters to the seven ecclesias, and he was mystified how the tone of those ecclesias through Christ Jesus didn't seem to match the meek and mild Jesus that he knew from the Gospels. Well, of course, he was completely wrong. But there there is a sense in which our Lord, in speaking to us, brethren and sisters, through these letters, has an authority which is not evident in the Gospels themselves. Uh, We're going to see a tone which is one of discernment and investigation, but nevertheless combined with encouragement and exhortation. And and I think that when you look at the way in which the revelation is presented to us, uh, the first thing that struck me is, is that this is a message to the disciple that Jesus loved. And yes, instead of appearing directly to John, he in fact used his angel to communicate with John. Now, now why should that be? And I think the answer lies in the exalted dominion of Jesus Christ. He's no longer Jesus. He's Lord and Christ. And it was to tell John and all of us, across the next 2,000 years, that he would be superintending all of this incredible arrangement of events through the angels whom he now commands and who are at his feet. He is Lord in Christ, and we should never forget the dominion and power which has been established as he sits on the right hand of God. And as John opened his words to us in chapter 1, deeply appreciative of the work of the Son of God, chapter 1 and verse 5, halfway through, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, hath made us unto our God kings and priests, to him be glory and dominion forever. 
There's the opening of John's exaltation of the Son of God, a deep appreciation of the enormous work of salvation he has accomplished. Take us, wash us, and make us kings and priests. What an amazing thing, brothers and sisters. And that's how John commenced this remarkable book. Under the law of Moses, there was a blessing and a cursing given to Israel. In this book, there is a blessing only. And I think the blessing that's given to us is a blessing, brothers and sisters, we ought to deeply appreciate because we have heard and we have understood. And now we have to keep it. And that's the essence of our discussion over the next few days, to examine ourselves, our position in our own ecclesias, and to keep the things that are written therein. So where were these seven ecclesias? Well, if we look at the map of Turkey today, we find, in fact, that the Seven Ecclesias were once existing in the region of Western Turkey there. And you can go to some of these spots today and you can look at the archaeological remains. And those archaeological remains are a testimony to the fact that these Ecclesias failed eventually in the commission that Jesus Christ gave them. And to stand in the ruins of Ephesus, where there is no Ecclesia today, it's a testimony, brothers and sisters, to the truthfulness of the Lord's words that if we don't understand, he'll remove the lampstand from our lives. Well, there they are, the seven ecclesias. It was Sir William Ramsey that suggested that, in fact, the order of the ecclesias was in a circular fashion and was most likely the way in which the, the post went. Post, of course, in those days was for the king's horses. And it's likely, he said, that, that this arrangement was in fact the royal postal delivery system. And therefore we start from Ephesus and work our way right round to Laodicea. Uh, be that as it may, John was in fact in the region of Patmos. And you can see there on the screen the region of Patmos. They're isolated from the mainstream of humanity. I don't know whether you've ever been to Patmos, but that's what it looks like. It's a barren outcrop, almost like a, uh, a place where little vegetation grows, and I can assure you that there was no worldly attractions there. No distractions from anything. It was a place for contemplation and exile. And you have to put yourself in that position. What, what would you do on the barren outcrop? Exiled from your ecclesia, from your brethren and sisters, alone. And it was there that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him through his angel. Why seven ecclesias? Well, well seven is the number, of course, of, of completion, isn't it? God completed the creation on the seventh day and rested. And seven is the number of the covenant as well. So, so these seven ecclesias are a snapshot, if you like, of all ecclesias in the known world that had embraced the covenant of Almighty God. And those seven in, in that snapshot, brethren and sisters, 
you could find your own ecclesial environment in one of those seven. Or perhaps a mixture of those seven. But, but it was sufficient. It was sufficient for brethren and sisters across the unknown world to, to, to take an understanding of the Lord's view of ecclesial life. And it uh, will either be encouraging or rebuking for us to find our ecclesial life in one of these seven ecclesias, or perhaps a mixture within these seven ecclesias. Each of the letters has a, has a common feature, a very simple structure. Unto the angel of the ecclesia, I know thy works, to him that overcometh, and finally he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. A very simple structure. No one can miss that. But within that remarkable structure, in a very clear seven steps, if you like, the Lord makes his pronouncements known. Sometimes there's an encouragement, sometimes there's a rebuke, sometimes there's a mixture of both. And, and it's this blend of encouragement and warning and promise that features in our Lord's words. What's remarkable in these seven letters is that that format, as you read each letter sequentially, you are drawn into the letter. He that hath an ear. So whilst the particular letters are addressed specifically to the angel ecclesia, and we'll see what that means in a moment, nevertheless, ecclesias are made up of individuals. He that hath an ear. An individual responsibility was sought by Jesus Christ from every one of those members of the ecclesia. And it's exactly the same with us. We can't stand back and say, oh, well, that's the ecclesia. We are the ecclesia. We are made up of that. We're a component of that. And therefore, the message is highly significant for every one of us individually. Ephesus. Probably one of the most remarkable archaeological sites in the world. And there is a photograph of the very arena, the very amphitheater that Paul stood in. The very amphitheater where they cried for hours, greatest dying of the Ephesians, an incredible place. And you can absorb yourself in that archaeological place and, and feel the vibrancy of the ecclesial life back then, 2,000 years ago. But Ephesus, of course, had its issues. It was a society which was materialistic. And Paul spoke in the letter to the Ephesians about the true wealth, the true riches of Jesus Christ. It was immoral, and that had had an impact upon the ecclesia, and therefore Paul had to talk about behaviour in the ecclesia. It was also given to idolatry. We know that the great temple of Diana, Artemis, was there present. All Asia worshipped her. By the time Paul wrote later on to young man Timothy, when he was in prison, there were... There were growing issues that needed to be handled. And when you look at the epistles that we've just read recently in our readings, we find that there is a very strong emphasis from Paul to Timothy that you need to have your doctrine right. And that we saw that yesterday, didn't we, with Titus as well. And the charge that Paul gave him was a serious charge because there would be some departing from the faith. Godliness would be disappearing 
Perilous times would come, he wrote. And, and, and to the credit of the Ephesian ecclesia, to the credit of the young man Timothy, we find, in fact, when we come 30 years later down the track to Revelation chapter 2, that they listened to those words. They did keep the charge. They did keep ungodliness out. They did keep the error out. But it came at a cost, as we shall see shortly. Well, each epistle is written to an angel, and the Greek word is agalos. And agalos simply means a messenger or an angel, depending on the context. Uh, we know from Mark chapter 1 and verse 2 that John the Baptist was the messenger, the agalos, the angel, if you like, of God, a messenger. We know in James chapter 2 it's used of the spies that, that went into to, to Rahab's place. And we know, of course, in Jude that it refers to those people in the wilderness who had a position of authority. So, so, so the word itself doesn't necessarily mean an angel from heaven. In fact, from the context of Revelation, as we read this morning, we find that it's the group of people who had the charge of resisting false teaching. It was the, if you like, the arranging group. Those who had the ecclesial leadership. The elders of that ecclesia were now being addressed. Brethren, if you are a member of an arranging group, you have a very, very significant responsibility to give guidance and leadership to your ecclesia, to God's ecclesia, in spiritual matters. And these brethren were held to account because it was under their guidance and their leadership that the ecclesia was either rising in prosperity spiritually or wallowing in spiritual infirmity. But as I mentioned, the, the, the ecclesia is made up of individuals and eventually it comes down to every single member of the ecclesia. The body of Christ has a many members. The elected arranging group is but a reflection of the body itself and its thinking. And therefore, brethren and sisters, Although it's addressed to those who lead, it's also for us who participate in ecclesial life today. We're not immune from these exhortations. In fact, there may have been some who 30 years previously Paul had spoken to at Ephesus. Remember that journey in Acts chapter 20 on his way to Jerusalem? Met the elders of the ecclesia there on the beach? pleaded with them, pleaded with them that they understood, to understand the danger that from amongst themselves, from amongst the arranging group, the elders, the agalos of Ephesus, there would be some who would, in fact, draw away disciples after them. And if any of those were alive 30 years later, they would have listened to this letter which the Lord himself addressed to the ecclesia itself. It was a, a, a moving, impassioned appeal. As Paul left that group of people, never to see them again. Well, we come to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the ecclesia of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, or we're going to translate that word lampstands. 
we find, in fact, that each of these introductions to the epistle is, in six of the occasions, drawing from the imagery of chapter 1. One like unto the Son of Man. A composite group, and yet an individual lesson from the leader of that group, the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself. And, and you, you ask yourself the question, well, well why, why should this be an introduction to the first of these ecclesias, uh, talking of the Lord's hand holding the seven stars. What, what does that represent? And why is it significant? Well, firstly, we know, of course, from Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, that, that stars represent saints. They represent those who've turned many from unrighteousness to righteousness, is Daniel 12 verse 3. They shall shine as the stars of heaven. So, so the Lord is standing there with 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 people in his hand. And these seven stars we know from chapter 1 and verse 20, let's just come back to that, the secret of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven the golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven ecclesias and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven ecclesias. So, so he begins the first of seven letters by saying, I'm holding the arranging brethren's group in my hand. And by extension, I'm holding every single member of those ecclesias in my hand. Now, now why, why should he speak in that language? Well, we find that the right hand of Jesus Christ is powerful indeed. Exceedingly powerful. And though he's going to issue rebukes, and though he's going to issue encouragement, he has made this promise in John chapter 10... He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them. I know thy works. That's the language of Revelation, isn't it? And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And there in, in the manifestation of power and greatness, of the hands that have created the heavens and the earth, spread the stars across like a curtain, in that hand, brethren and sisters, resides every single one of us. Every single one of us. And I've given you, said Jesus Christ, everlasting life. I'm going to rebuke you, and I'm going to encourage you, but I want you to know that if you stay in that hand, you will never perish. What a wonderful way to introduce that remarkable figure. And the right hand of God is used in several ways in Scripture. It's used in Psalm 17 of the hand that saves. God has not brought us into the truth to desert us. God has not brought us into the truth to abandon us. He's brought us nigh to save us. And we ought to take encouragement from that. In fact, Psalm 18 says that God uses his right hand to hold up those who are flagging and failing. But the right hand is also used in the scriptures to find out his enemies. And we're going to see in these epistles that there are enemies and the Lord is going to use very blunt and very straightforward language to describe the awfulness of some of these influences in ecclesial life. And that right hand also is full of righteousness. 
righteousness. He's going to do what is right. You know, as we read these epistles, we're going to find that the Lord's words are very challenging to every one of us. They are direct. When we come to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, we need to understand that these words have been given out of love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Out of love and concern, these words are written. So if we find them challenging, if we find them blunt, if we find them to the point, then we need to appreciate that they've been given out of love. And I chasten. In Hebrews, we learn that God, as a father, chastens. And he's given that authority of chastening to his son. And the son looks at our lives, interrogates us, and acts appropriately towards us. The first point that Revelation chapter 2 makes is that the Lord is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, just, just try and wrap your head around this. Every time we have a business meeting, our Lord is there. Our memorial meetings, our Bible classes, public lectures, our outings, our family activities in his name, he's in our midst. And we struggle, don't we, to remember that, particularly when things get a bit heated in an arranged brethren's meeting or a business meeting or we have an altercation with a brother and sister. He is walking in our midst. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there, he said. I am there. And that consciousness of the presence of our Lord is something which tragically we tend to forget or dismiss in our everyday dealings with each other. But in actual fact, that language, that, that concept is drawn from the Old Testament. We're not going to have time to turn up many of these quotations, but I've just put two there on the screen for you. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he said in Leviticus 26 and verse 12, and I'm quoting from Young's literal translation, I have walked habitually in your midst and have become your God, and ye, ye are become my people. So walking in our midst is a sense of closeness and fellowship. So our interaction with each other, our fellowship with each other, the Lord's right in the middle of that conversation, just as he was right in the middle of the desert, in the tabernacle, in Israel. But in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 14, God says, I also walk up and down in the midst of thy camp, and I want to see no unclean thing in the camp. I'm walking there. My footsteps can be seen, as it were, in the desert next to the tabernacle. And I don't want to be treading amongst the unclean. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder what uh, uncleanness the Lord would find in our ecclesial life and our discussions with each other and our meetings as he walks in our midst. 
And just as he walked in the middle of the tabernacle, in the midst of the congregation, walking with that whole group of people, bearing with them, so he walks amongst our own ecclesias doing exactly the same thing. We are the body, the tabernacle, the temple, the house of God. And in the midst of that, our God is walking. It's a very sobering thought when we think about that. So he opens his words with the words in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience. He knows. As the proverb says, for the ways of man are before the eyes of Yahweh and he ponders all his goings. So at the moment, as we sit here, as I stand here, the Lord is pondering our thoughts and our goings, not just what we're thinking, but where we're going, what we're doing. It's a very, very sobering thought. You only have to read the 139th Psalm to understand that Yahweh is nigh to every one of us. Knows our thoughts before we even think them. The words that we speak, he anticipates. And it's examining the ecclesia of Ephesus. It examines our own life and our own ecclesia. And how it's faring in these last days. I know, he said, I know. I know everything that you do. The works. A lot of words spoken in ecclesial halls. Sometimes hot air, sometimes useful and edifying. But the Lord is examining what we're doing. Are we preaching? Is the word going forth dynamically? Are we encouraging our young people to have activities which stimulate in the word of God and edify and encourage? I know. I know what you're doing. I know you're Ecclesia is doing, my Ecclesia back at Salisbury. And he said, not just the works, but, but the labour. And, and this Greek word is really a, a word that describes intense labour, toil. If you find yourself flat out in ecclesial life and busy, 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 which is a wonderful thing to, to, to be engaged in, then our Lord is aware of that. He was aware of this ecclesia that put in hours and hours to combat the errorists that were emerging from this region. And also he was aware of their patience. It's a very true adage that the older you get, the more impatient you become. And I think patience is a virtue. In fact, it's a divine virtue because, you see, that's precisely what God is like, long-suffering. And it's very easy to become quick, tempered and irritable with people. Well, we can't afford to be like that, can we? And this ecclesia had done a wonderful job, an amazing job. And the words that Paul has spoken to Timothy, the charge had been kept. And that young man, together with his arranging group, had managed to labour and toil incessantly and patiently to bring to pass the events of verse 2. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the Ecclesia at Ephesus. There were in their midst, as we've said, ravening wolves. And, and the Lord uses an expression 
about bearing. Now, now Paul said in Romans 14 that we should bear each other's infirmities. And we should, as Christ bore the reproaches of those who reproached him. We bear people's infirmities. But, but there comes a point when those infirmities perhaps may turn to evil, and that's where we can no longer bear. We can no longer carry or shoulder or sustain or support that. And the brethren and sisters at Ephesus had done precisely that. They, that. they had seen where that line was. They had understood now that these brethren now were emerging were evil. Their consequences were evil. Their behavior was evil. And they could no longer bear them. As we've got on the screen there, that, that's the same language that God used in Jeremiah 44. He said, I can no longer bear your iniquities. I, I can't bear them anymore. I've been shouldering your responsibilities. I've been shouldering your transgressions. And I can't do it anymore. And it's exactly what happened to the brethren in Ephesus itself. And when you trace through that little word evil through the scriptures, you, you find it, it covers a behavior that is the most ungodly behavior. Speaking guile, displaying envy, having no faith, lusting, smiting, robbing, idolatry. And all of those things are encompassed in that word evil, and they could not allow that to fester in the ecclesia of God. So how, how had they worked through those issues? Well, they put them on trial. Thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. So, so, so we're not just dealing with uh, a brother or sister who, who may, in fact, have a way of life or perhaps a way of teaching that is contrary to the word of God. We are talking about brethren who said they were apostles. And they had to be, in fact, put on trials. First of John chapter 4, verse 1 says that, that, that we try the spirits. We put them to the test. Is their teaching compatible with Scripture? And if it's not, we need to deal with that. In fact, those who said they were apostles... The Apostle Paul had a word for that in 2 Corinthians. He called them pseudo-apostles, pretending apostles. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Just, just think how difficult it is to have in your ecclesia a visiting brother that comes in and declares himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. No internet. Know where to check him. He may bring with him his papers of recommendation, which they used in first century ecclesias, has a commendation of recommendations from a forwarding ecclesia, and he arrives in your midst and you show him the hospitality which the ecclesia was renowned for in those days. And then you find that the message he's been given is a deceitful message, a self congratulatory message. And you've got to deal with that. You find him affecting families, upsetting people, engaging in conversation that's destructive. And you've got to deal with that and handle that and put that to the test. And they did. It's precisely what they did. 
thou hast borne and hast patient. They, they, they dealt with them in a brotherly fashion. And, and it's, it's a very fine line, isn't it, to, to understand the, the, the fact that we have to bear with brethren to, to understand what they're teaching. But there came a point where they could no longer bear that. And they had to make a decision. They had patience. But in the end, they had to draw that line. And, and the basis of their action, the basis of their labor, was for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we find, in fact, that the theme of the name continues through the apocalypse. What, why do we labor, brethren and sisters? Is it, for, is it for self-adulation? Is it for congratulations? Is it for that, that thank you at the end of it? Or is it for the name of Jesus Christ? They had labored with wearisome toil, is the Greek, on account of my name, and they had not grown weary. The name of Jesus Christ, his honor, his glory, not our own. And the Lord is asking us to look at our motives and why we do things. Do you know, in Matthew chapter 7, when a group came to the judgment seat in the parables that he was uttering, the Lord described a group of people who were astounded by the fact that, that what they were doing in ecclesial life was not acceptable to him. Have we not cast devils out in thy name? In thy name? The Lord said, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Work iniquity. They were healing and casting out in the name of Jesus Christ. But you see, it was for self-adulation. It was the I and the we that was emphasized in their words rather than the name of Jesus Christ. Why do we labor? Why do we contribute? Why do we attend? needs to be for the name of Jesus Christ, to hold fast the name, to fear the name, to have the name imprinted on the forehead. It's his glory and his righteousness. Now this introduces a very powerful thought, you see, because thou hast not fainted. Now, now can you imagine being in the ecclesia, constantly, constantly having to battle brethren with false ideas? Wrong teaching, doctrinal error. Can you imagine that? And, and, and that's why the Lord commended the fact that they, they were not fainting. And it really introduces, brethren and sisters, a, a little exhortation that goes to the New Testament about spiritual weariness. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Let's, let's make sure that we don't faint in our mind. And, and that little exhortation, which, which just occurs a couple of times in the New Testament, is significant, you see, because here we are, 23 years beyond the turn of the millennium, and the Lord has not yet returned. And, and time just seems to go on, doesn't it? We, we're, we're in high expectation, but we're still here today in 2023. And there is a real danger particularly if we are busy in ecclesial life and busy doing things, that, that we, we become spiritually exhausted. And we faint in our minds. 
And therefore, these exhortations were relevant to the brethren and sisters that the apostles wrote to. And, and, and the Lord commended Ephesus. You haven't fainted. But it had taken its toll on the ecclesia. And, and I, I can appreciate this, you see, because year after year after year, if you're trying to maintain the integrity and purity of the truth of God, and you're always combating, and you're always arguing, and you're always bearing, and you're always debating in a, in a godly way, in a brotherly way, it takes its toll. And what had happened was, was that this ecclesia had left its first love. And that word left is the divorce word. The, 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 the love that they had, the relationship as, as part of the bride of Christ that they had with their Lord was fracturing. And that sense of duty and responsibility had squashed the enthusiasm and love of the truth. I think we can all remember the enthusiasm that we had when we were baptised and, and that rush of enthusiasm and commitment and the love that we had. Sometimes we can never recapture those early days, can we? The Lord had warned that the love of many would wax cold and that was very true. We can't afford to be so immersed in the doing of ecclesial life to lose the enthusiasm and love and relationship that we have with God and his son. We can't afford to lose that love, that commitment, that closeness with God. Unfortunately, the brethren and sisters of Ephesus had borne for so long that the Lord had to say, you've left your first love. Now, you imagine, you imagine sitting in an ecclesia and this letter was written to your ecclesia, to you personally, sitting in the audience, and the Lord has said, look, I, I commend your labour, I commend your work, I, I, I commend your commitment, but, but really you've lost your love. How, how, how do you feel about that? And for those who had a spiritual conscience, it was time to change. The Lord said, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. And that word remember is straight out of the last speech that Paul gave in Acts chapter 20. Watch and remember. You heard those words 30 years before on the shores of Ephesus. Well, I'm reminding you again. Think about those early days. Think about that initial time when you were baptised. Think about that, that, that tremendous sense of encouragement that you received, the wonder of the truth bursting upon your life, recapture that. Recapture that. It's a falling from grace, falling from steadfastness. It's like a pillar having collapsed, fallen over, like a house imploding in itself. It's time to rebuild, time to reassess. So I want you to change. I want you to change. You know, sometimes we feel that repentance is for outsiders <coughs> coming into the truth. And it is. Repent and be baptised. But it's also a word that is highly charged for brethren and sisters like us who have 
slipped and fallen. And I think, for instance, as we go through, don't we, cycles of spirituality, our highs and our lows. Sometimes we suddenly need to take stock and to change direction, to change thinking, to reverse direction. So, so repentance and change is not something just for interested friends. It's for us all to, to suddenly take stock, to say, I need to change direction. I need to make things better. I need to be more committed. I need to study more. I need to read more. I need to understand more. I need to love more. None of us are exempt, are we, from that exhortation. It's, it's time to change that Jesus Christ. And, and the consequences of that are quite brutal when you think about it. 26 years before, the lampstand had literally been removed from the Jewish nation. On the Arch of Titus, as depicted here, the lampstand was removed and Israel was extinguished. And Lord Jesus Christ says that I'm going to do precisely that to your ecclesia. Now, those are chilling words when you think about it. The oil that is in the light, in the lampstand, is a representation of the word of God. My word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And more specifically, as Brother Thomas points out in Eureka, that what this really was, was a, was a warning to the spirit-filled elders that he would withdraw that spirit oil. And that the ecclesia would be left to its own devices unguided by the Spirit of God and only to be guided by the word of truth. And there would be an extinguishing darkness. Now, Brother Roberts made the point here in his 13 lectures that God does act against ecclesial evils. If the blessings he confers are not appreciated, he will remove them. And he does that through providence. I mean, for example, if, if you have an ecclesia that's always infighting, that has lost its spirituality, the fruits of that will be a diminished ecclesia until finally it disappears. The reward that it receives is from its own deeds. And through the providence of God, that ecclesia will finally disappear. Ecclesias do come and go, don't they? It might be through ageing populations. It might be for all sorts of reasons. We live in a world, actually, ecclesial world, where the number of brethren and sisters in the Western world is generally diminishing. And we need to ask ourselves why. We need to appreciate that the Lord is walking in our midst and he's rewarding us according to our works. This will become clearer as we look at some other epistles. Well, the group that was responsible for this error, this combativeness within the ecclesia, was a group called the Nicolaitans. It's a symbolic name. Nico means people, victory, shall I say, and Laos means people, victory over the people. And there was emerging, as, as Brother Thomas points out in Eureka, there was emerging a bishop amongst the arranging group 
And that bishop then began to receive authority and dominion and power within the ecclesial base until finally it became a church. And that dominance and that preeminence of, of powerful individuals was in fact the way in which the laity was vanquished. The ordinary common brother and sister like ourselves. Now look at the word hate. Look at that word. It's not I dislike, I'm uncomfortable, I don't appreciate, I hate it. And we're going to see that the Lord has some very strong language against these errorists. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the ecclesias. That's the language drawn from the Gospels. It's the language that the Lord used in the parable of the sower. Listen carefully. Understand. Appreciate your accountability. Every one of you has ears. Are they open? Are they listening? And for you that can overcome, he said. If you can overcome... If you can have dominion, as was Genesis chapter 1 promised to Adam, if your faith can be dominant, if your love can reign supreme, if your service and commitment can come back, he said, I'm prepared to give you everlasting life. I'm prepared to allow you access to the tree of life. I'm prepared to give you immortality that was promised way back 6,000 years ago. It's a sobering message, isn't it? A message of our Lord's presence in our midst, of commendation. I know your works, I know your patience, I know your labour, but I want you to revitalise your love. And if you can do that, if you can get back to that, I'm prepared to give you everlasting life. This morning we're going to look at two ecclesias. The, the first is Smyrna, only a very few words spoken to that ecclesia, but words of great power and intent. And of course the ecclesia of Pergamos. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ brings to effect a title which says there in verse 8, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And that's all that remains of the ancient city of Smyrna today. In fact, that's not even a first century construction. It's a later construction. But the interesting thing about the very geography and history of the city itself was that the city was destroyed in about BC 600 and it remained dead for 300 years. And it sprang to life again in BC 290 when the Greeks rebuilt it. So that there was a, an appropriateness of the symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ in addressing himself as one that was dead and now alive. But before that comes the title drawn from the first chapter of Revelation of the Lord himself who says that he is the first 
and the last, the, the alpha and the omega. And in the Greek alphabet, there are 24 letters, unlike the English alphabet. And the 24, of course, is a number which is relevant in Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders. It is a representation of God's purpose in his manifestation. It's an actual fact drawn from three areas of Isaiah. I'd like to turn to Isaiah 41 just to illustrate just one of these. We haven't got time to look at all three of them, but the context of each of these is highly significant in relation to the work of Christ in the Ecclesia. So Isaiah 41 is specifically a courtroom scene in which the Gentiles are invited to look at the foolishness of idolatry. And so in verse 4, God says this, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. And in the Hebrew, that is, I am the first and the last ones. And what that verse explains is, is that God's whole providential purpose <clears throat> is to become, that's the word Yahweh, isn't it? He who will become, he'll become manifested and revealed in people. And it will start with a single individual, the first one, which is Lord Jesus Christ. And it will go on for centuries until it, the Lord comes and that will be the last one. And we sit here this morning, brothers and sisters, as part of that manifestation. We are in that line of the first of the last. And those who come into the truth at the very end, the very final stages, are still part of that wonderful manifestation of the Father who indeed knows the end from the beginning, who caused each generation. And it's a wonderful, glorious thing to know that God chooses people from generation to generation and in the mercy of God we are part of that great line now the relevance of that of course is that in verse 10 he says fear thou not for I am with thee and those words appear in the revelation chapter 2 in relation to this ecclesia so you see there's a, a relevance and context to, to the way in which the Lord picks this phraseology up Isaiah 44, verse 6, the same point is made in that particular chapter. As a guarantee of resurrection, I am the first and the last one. Apart from me, there is no other God. And once again in Isaiah 44, there is that command, fear not. And the final one is in Isaiah 48. And that particular chapter is a condemnation to Jews who said they were Jews but were not, the false Jews of the society. So, you know, when the Lord said, I am the first one and I am the last one, it really was an invitation for the Ecclesia to go back to those chapters in Isaiah and to draw the context and to receive strength and encouragement. I am the first and the last. And one day, brothers and sisters, that line will finish and the last ones will be gathered in and the glorious manifestation of immortality will at last be complete. But we have this comfort that God is with us. Let's come back to Revelation chapter 2. As I mentioned before, the point about the Lord himself declaring the fact that he was once dead but is now alive is of great relevance to this ecclesia 
in Smyrna. It's a faithful thing, said Paul, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. And the reason why this title is going to predominate is because, you see, there is further trial and suffering about to descend upon this ecclesia. Now you think about this. This letter is one of the shortest of the letters. It would have taken probably about five minutes to read one Sunday morning at a memorial meeting. And the impact would have been absolutely electrifying. Because the message, the message is one of further suffering. I've gone through it, said Jesus Christ. I've gone through the suffering, the crucifixion, and I'm alive. And that would have resonated to this ecclesia. Now he says, I know thy works. And, and, and again, we, we have this emphasis of the Lord being fully aware of ecclesial responsibilities and fully aware of the activities of individual ecclesias. I know thy works, but I also know thy tribulation. And it's the Greek word thlipsis, which means pressure. Pressure doesn't necessarily mean outward affliction. Pressure. And, you know, we all feel pressure, don't we? Pressure is the divine hand squeezing us into a mould, the mould of the likeness of the Son of God. And pressures come from all sorts of areas, all sorts of avenues, all sorts of difficulties and trials. And God is pressuring us. Without that pressure, we couldn't be moulded into the likeness of the Son of God. And the Lord says, I'm aware of that. I know what you're going through. Sometimes we feel that nobody knows what we're going through. But Jesus said, I do. I know it. And I understand that you haven't got much money. I understand that the ecclesia is poor. It was an unusual situation because, you see, Western Turkey at that time was quite a, um, quite a wealthy province in the Roman Empire. And for an ecclesia to be poor, uh, that would suggest that there was, in fact, pressures upon them that had deprived them of employment, <coughs> that, that had, had put them into poverty. And the Lord says, I, I know that. I know you're going through financial difficulties. I understand that, but you're rich, rich in faith. You see, when we don't have, and when the pressure mounts upon us, then that develops a faith, an intensity of hope. And Christ says, that's, that's a wealth that no one can give to you except me. That's, that's real wealth. But I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. And of course, there's an absolute contrast to the last ecclesia, Laodicea, that had all the money in the world, but in fact were poor spiritually. Two contrasting ecclesias. But I know what you're going through. The other interesting thing is, is that he not only knows the ecclesia's welfare, he also knows the opposition that they're experiencing. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, he didn't write a letter to this group of people. But he knew them. And he knew what they were doing. And he was fully conscious of that. The blasphemy. Blasphemy, really, in the, the original Greek, means to speak ill of. 
He said, I, I know what they're saying. I know the slander that they're giving you. I know the injury they're making. I, I'm not oblivious to that, Smyrna. I know that. And, and this group of people were really of the synagogue of Satan. Now, now that implies a separate meeting, a synagogue, a, a congregation of Satan. And we know from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, which was written around the time of the apocalypse, that there were a group of people who had left the ecclesia. They're not of us, said John. And the evidence they're not of us is because they left us. And it's quite clear that this ecclesia at Smyrna had struggled with this particular group of evil brethren. And the meeting had split. And there was a specific group of people calling themselves a synagogue. They said they were Jews but were not. They said they were Israelites but they were not. Satan. Satan is, is of course, the word adversary, isn't it? And, and it's specifically used in the New Testament of religious adversity. Paul used that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to speak about the adversary, a messenger of light, he said, clothing himself in, in religious integrity, but actually subtly undermining the ecclesia. And Satan, we're going to see, particularly in the book of Revelation, is a term that's really reserved for for religious adversity it came from the judaizer and it eventually turned into a church it's the mystery of iniquity that was at work after the working of satan says paul in second thessalonians so ephesus had tried the false teachers and found them wanting but they hadn't formed their own meeting smyrna now we find had actually done all the work and the meeting had split and there was now down the road a church, a synagogue of Satan. For all that wonderful stand against the error, the Lord says, I've got something to tell you that's going to disturb you. And I don't want you to be afraid. And you imagine this being read to the congregation, the ecclesia, on the Sunday morning, as it were, there's worse coming. There is worse coming. You've gone through great difficulty. You've gone through an ecclesial division. You've stood firm. Well, let me tell you that the reward I'm going to give you is further distress. Now, how do you think you take that? And that expression, fear not, goes all the way through the scriptures. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, little flock, said Jesus Christ. I am with you. Even back in the law, Yahweh had said, I am with you. And all the way through scripture, God is with us. We don't see him physically, but we have to believe that he is with us. And we ask ourselves the question, brothers and sisters, why did the Lord reward this faithful little ecclesia with further suffering? And I think really it's the principle of John 15, isn't it? Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And that really becomes the essence of the removal of the lampstands from ecclesias that don't produce fruit. Like a branch, pruned and cut off. But every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth or prunes it or cuts it back that it may bring forth much fruit. 
And sometimes in the collegial life, brothers and sisters, we, we, we see families who go through tremendous difficulty, tremendous pressure, tremendous trials, and they come through that and they get more trials and more difficulties and more pressure. And we look at them and we, we marvel at the, the faithfulness of those brothers and sisters. It's exactly the same in this little ecclesia here. Now you imagine sitting in that meeting and the message of the Lord is saying, further trouble's coming. And you know further trouble's coming. How do you think you respond to that? Behold, th this is the further trouble coming. And it's not going to be pleasant. The devil, the, the Greek word diabolos, the false accuser, will throw you into prison. There was only one power that had the authority to throw people into prison, and that was the Roman power, the military imperial power. And while Satan is generally used in the apocalypse to be a religious adversary, diabolos is often used to be the imperial power. The devil and Satan, Revelation 12, joins them together. And you're going to be tried further. You've gone through an ecclesial division. You've stood fast to the truth. But I'm going to put more pressure on you to produce more fruit. Now you're sitting there with your wife and your children on that Sunday morning. And you're listening to that. And the message is, you're going to be thrown to prison. Are you ready for that, brethren and sisters? Are you ready for that? And it, and it would have, brethren and sisters, sent a, a, a gasp through the audience. Imprisonment of the Roman authorities to further purify. And you shall have tribulation ten days. The, the pressure that you've been through will continue. And, and that ten days, on, on the day for a year principle, was the persecutions that rocked the religious world through the reign of Trajan there from 1898 to 1817, approximately ten years through that reign. Not one year, not two years, not five years, ten years of intense pressure. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm, I'm with you. And that would have been the greatest test of this young ecclesia. Could, could we have borne that message, brothers and sisters? Could, could we have sat there in the audience listening to that, knowing that in the next ten years... We're going to face enormous pressure, ending up in prison, and we're already poor. We're already struggling to make ends meet. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. What an astounding message to receive, this faithful little ecclesia. And you know, brothers and sisters, there, there has been correspondence which has been unearthed. There was correspondence between Pliny, who was the Roman governor of Bithynia, which is in the region of Turkey. And Trajan the emperor during this persecution around AD 111. And, and it illustrates what was occurring through this particular time. It's remarkable, isn't it, that we, we have evidence as to this. Let me just read this to you. I asked them whether they were Christians. Are you a brother and sister of Jesus Christ? If they pleaded guilty, I interrogated them twice afresh with a menace of capital punishment. So the threats were there. And it was, are you sure you're a Christadelphian? Really, are you sure you're a Christadelphian? I, I interrogated them twice, just to make sure. 
In case of obstinate perseverance, I order them to be executed. Yes, I'm a Christadelphian. Right, execution. For of this I had no doubt whatever was the nature of their religion, that a sullen and obstinate inflexibility called for the vengeance of the magistrate. Some were infected with the same madness, whom on account of their privilege of citizenship I reserved to be sent to Rome to be referred to your tribunal. So some who claimed Roman citizenship, like Paul did, also were sent off to Rome for the imperial tribunal. So, so, so there we have it. Yes, I'm a Christadelphian. Well, I'm going to execute you. You know, brothers and sisters, when we look back at the faithfulness of these brothers and sisters, we are astounded, aren't we, at the faith to endure these things. And our problems seem minor in comparison to some of these problems. Hang on. The Greek is keep on becoming faithful. Keep on becoming faithful to death and I will give you a coronal wreath of life. Hang on, be faithful, continue to the end. He that endureth to the end will be saved. And I will give you what all athletes, all contested in the games, all people who in fact in Smyrna were used to the games. I'm going to give you the coronal wreath of everlasting life. And you imagine for every brother and sister who went through that to receive this glorious crown. In the games of the times, only one winner got the crown. And Jesus is saying, every one of you, every one of you will get that crown. You'll be standing on the podium and receive my adulation and praise. And I'll give you that coronal wreath of life. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that bread and sisters gave their lives standing fast and in the end will receive that glorious crown. He that overcometh shall not be hurt at the second death. Second death occurs three times in the apocalypse. First is in Revelation 20, verse 6. Coming forth from resurrection, the second death has no power. Death is completely abolished. Revelation 20 verse 14, the second death is reserved for those who have rejected Jesus Christ and they'll be destroyed with the world. And just to emphasize the point in Revelation 21 verse 8, the second death is reserved for the fearful and unbelieving. And if there were any in the congregation who were fearful and unbelieving, and left the meeting because persecution was coming, the second death would take them into oblivion. It's an epistle of life and death. But if you can continue the course to the end, said Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you a reward which is never, ever going to fade, a coronal wreath of lust for immortality. And death will have no more dominion over you in any aspect. Fear not, I am with you. Well, that leaves us breathless, I think. It leaves me breathless when I consider the enormity of that message. Brief message though it is. But we move on, brothers and sisters, to the next ecclesia, the ecclesia at Pergamos. Uh, this is a, an artist's 
rendition of the glory of this city, Pergamos. It was quite an impressive city. Pergamos itself, the message was entirely different. It was a different ecclesia to the ecclesia at Smyrna, but nevertheless one that needed to be addressed. And the man who said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, introduces himself with a sharp sword on both edges. It's a dramatic introduction, isn't it, to this message to the Ecclesia. It's a different kind of message to the message to Smyrna, but nevertheless equally impressive. Now that language is drawn not only from Revelation chapter 1, which most of these um, uh, introductions are, are drawn from, but it also comes from Isaiah chapter 49. Let's just turn to Isaiah 49. It's a servant song, a song of Messiah. And once again, it's addressed to the Gentiles in verse 1. Listen, O isles, and hearken, ye people from far. Yahweh has called me from the womb. He's made mention of my name. And in verse 2, he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. So, so the introduction of the servant is as a warrior. And when he speaks, he speaks with royal authority. And that word, as we know from Hebrews 4 verse 12, is like a sharp-edged sword, dividing asunder and cutting through everything. It's a song, brethren and sisters, which in actual fact says at the end of verse 6 that it was his work to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's precisely what had happened. But it was also a, psalm which in, uh, a song which in verse 9 was to release people from prison and to give them the water of life. So when we come back to Revelation chapter 2, there is authority in this. There's a sharpness about this message because the ecclesia needed it. But nevertheless, God was seeking to save this ecclesia. Now here's a, another artist's depiction of the situation with Pergamos. It was built on a natural fortress, on a summit. It was an imperial city. In fact, it was said that you could see the far-off isles of Lesbos there in the, the Aegean. It was a citadel demanding constant watchfulness against the surrounding enemies. Now, the reason why we've got this here is because, you see, in verse 13, I know where thou dwellest. Now, that's interesting. God makes, through his son, a comment about the environment they were living in, where thou dwellest. God is aware of the political, ecclesiastical environment in which we live. He's not unaware of that. 
I know, I know the difficulties you face. I know the environment you're in. I know the pressures you're feeling. And in fact, we actually find that the Pergamon was the centre of worship of this Greek god, Escupolis. And in fact, this god of healing was in every respect almost like the lords of Europe. It was a place where people flocked to to receive medical attention. And the gods who were involved in this were described as saviours, which would, of course, have been highly offensive to the brethren sitters in Christ. This was the city. And the emblem of this particular Greek god of healing was a serpent. And you didn't have to worry about anaesthetics because you lay there that night and snakes came over your body. You can imagine the treatment sisters winding around your body and it was thought that the slime of those particular snakes contributed to the healing. Most unusual form of medicine, you'd agree. But it was all religious related, psychosomatic. Thousands flocked there for this. And the God of healing was exalted. I know where you live. But more predominantly, Pergamon was noted for this massive statue of Zeus. It was massive. And therefore the issue of idolatry was a pressing issue in this ecclesia. This, this was dominant. This is not just some little household god. This is a massive statue. In fact, you can go to the museum, Pergamon Museum in Germany today and you can see the, the restoration of the altar. And that's just the altar that sits at the feet of this image. It was massive. I know where thou livest. I know the pressures you're under. And more than that, this particular god Zeus commanded obedience through the imperial power. And it's recorded that every year you had to acknowledge Caesar as God. You had to take a pinch of incense, and as you pinched that incense on the altar, you had to say the words, Caesar is Lord. And there were ramifications if you didn't do that. You'd lose your job. It was a test of political loyalty, a test of citizenship. And if you didn't go with that, you were an outcast from citizen society. And you couldn't, in fact, get a job. And also, beside that, idolatry and emperor worship and the pressures of that, there was this massive, massive emphasis on entertainment. And the great theatre of Pergamos, extolled by... Philosophers and play artists alike of the era, where acoustics were pinpoint accuracy, was also a flavour of their environment. Entertainment is a huge god, a huge draw card. Dominates the world today. We ought to resist that. I'm aware of the place you live. I know the environment. And also... To make matters worse, I'm aware that it's the place in verse 13 of Satan's seat. And the Greek word is thronos. 
And thronos implies imperial power, temporal power. So what we have in this particular ecclesial environment is not only a synagogue of Satan, like Smyrna, but we now have the seat of this adversity taking root in a temporal way. So it's quite clear that this idea of, of, of the, the bishop is now in the ascendancy and he now has not just religious influence in the meeting, but he has temporal influence in the meeting, like a little emperor. This is starting to grow. And its throne, the centre of its authority, was here in Pergamos. I, I know where you live. I know the pressures you're under. This is how fast the apostasy had, in fact, accelerated. It's amazing when you think about it that in just 60 years after the Lord's death, we have the makings of this enormously powerful apostasy. You know, I just want you to think for a moment about ecclesial life in the first century. Just come back to 1st of John, just a, a few pages before. We know that the epistles of John were written around the same time as the Apocalypse, and they, they demonstrate to us what ecclesial life was like towards the end of the first century. And I'll tell you what, it, it, it was difficult. Most of the apostles had died, if not all of them, except John. First of John chapter 2 and verse 18, little children, it is the last time. Now, now what do you mean by the last time? I think that expression, Britain sitters, is, is the last time of which the spirit gifts would be available. AD 70 had passed, the last days of Judah's commonwealth had passed, but in ecclesial life it was also the last time. There was a watershed coming in which the spirit gifts would no longer be transmitted from the apostles to the brethren and sisters. It's the last time. And as you've heard, Antichrist <coughs> shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know it's the last time. So you're in an ecclesial environment, 60 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death of all the apostles has occurred, and you find this great movement and swell against apostolic authority, and you can't do anything about it except make a stand for the truth. Verse 19, they've left us, they've, they've, they've gone out. As we saw with Smyrna, it's the synagogue of Satan. Now we see in Pergamos, it's the throne of Satan, developing. They went out from us, but they're not of us. So in chapter 4, coming across, whoever believeth, sorry, verse uh, one of chapter four, beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, so you had a regular, a regular testing regime in your ecclesia. Speaker comes, let's have a chat first. Let's understand what you're teaching, what your message is. And they're, they're tested. This is what, what Ephesus did. They tried them who said they were apostles when were not. Now, you imagine a collegiate environment like that, where, where, where trust has gone out the window because all of these false prophets are scattered through the ecclesial world, and you've got to put them to test. And if you don't put them to test, then you're going to be inviting to your ecclesial environment awful doctrines. In chapter 3 and verse 7, 
Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. There was a deceptive force. It wasn't easy to actually distinguish brethren and sisters who were deceivers. Now you think of, of, the, of the wisdom required to handle that. In the second epistle of John, John had to write to a faithful sister and say, don't invite everybody into your ecclesial house. Because if they bring wrong doctrine, then you are going to be a partaker of their evil deeds. So, so, so immediately all the house ecclesias are on alert. And of course in the third epistle of John, we have a, a brother who loved the preeminence, almost a a foretaste of the coming bishop crisis. And, and he was so arrogant that he refused to fellowship the Apostle John. It's an amazing situation. Now, we're not going to look at this this morning in any detail, but I want you to notice those quotations. That there's a little theme going to the epistles of John. He that saith, he that saith. Oh, let's just look at the first one. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship, if we say this, if we say this, if we say this, but do the opposite. Now that language, brethren and sisters, carries across into the epistles in Revelation chapter 2. Those who said they were apostles, those who said they are members of the body. There were lots of people affirming they were Christadelphians. It's very easy to say, rolls off the tongue quite quickly. That's ecclesial life in the first century. It wouldn't have been easy. As all these false teachers were dispersing themselves amongst the ecclesias. So coming back to Revelation chapter 2. What did the Lord require of these brethren in Pergamos? I want you to hold fast. And the Greek word means to seize and to grab hold of it. Grab hold of it with both hands and never let it go. You know, that, that's commitment, isn't it? That's saying that the truth is a treasure that needs to be treasured and held fast. And it's important for us to do that too. To hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in an environment where Caesar is Lord, as opposed to Jesus is Lord... Holding fast my name was a significant answer to this imperial worship where Caesar was to be declared Lord. I want you to hold fast my name. Not Caesar's name, my name. And all the implications that go with that, possible loss of your job, excommunicated, as it were, from society. I want you to hold fast to my name. You know, these are very real challenges, aren't they, the Ecclesia faced? My name, we saw that in our last study, the importance of the name of Jesus Christ. His glory, his honour, his name. And I don't want you to deny my faith. That's interesting, isn't it? Not the faith, although it is the faith. It's my faith. I have been faithful. I have been faithful unto death. And I want you to emulate that same faithfulness. That's my faith. My faith. And Luke chapter 12 verse 9 says this, that if we deny our Lord, he will deny us. 
got a very brief verse. If we don't have the courage to stand up for the things of Jesus Christ, then he won't stand up for us. My faith and my name. And I know you've got to stand before Caesar. I know that. But I want you to, to, to not deny my name. To proclaim that. To have the same faith that I had. Well, in verse 13, he continues there and talks about what had happened prior to him writing to this ecclesia. So perhaps maybe 10 years before, 86 perhaps, maybe around that time, there was an event that occurred in their ecclesia in which they had stood fast. And, and the group that stood fast is, is given a Revelation symbolic name, Antipas, which means against all. They stood up against imperial decrees, they stood up against Zeus, they stood up against the foolishness of the, of the medical so-called godly traditions there, they stood fast against all, everything, everything. And as a result of that, they were martyred. Now, my faith of the previous verse and my faithful witness is the link of thought between the two verses. I remember, he said, that years before that you had kept my faith. And there was a faithful witness. The word martyr means witness. And they had stood up and they had proclaimed my name. I recognize that. And you have a great legacy to follow. This man who, or this group that was against all. And it would appear, that the fact that he mentions this is the place where Satan dwelleth, it would appear that this group of people, this, this group that was against the ecclesia, had some hand in the death of these people. That's how evil this group called the Satan, the adversary, had affected its way amongst the ecclesia. They were responsible for this group's death. He said, I, I remember that, and, and I want you to remember that, because that's the example I want you to follow. But there's always a but, isn't there, in these letters, in most of these letters, but. And, and it's, it's the way of our Lord to commend first, to encourage first, to give hope first, and then to issue a warning. I have something against thee. Now, now, imagine that letter being read in the congregation in the morning. That Jesus Christ is saying, I have something against you. Against you, not for you, against you. That there is something which I do not approve of. And what is this? Thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And that word hold is a contrast to hold fast or seize. Can you see that? that, that I'm asking you to hold fast and to seize my name, but you've got these people in your ecclesia who seize a different name. And you're, in fact, holding them there. And it's the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, <coughs> waster of the people. We've had the Nicolaitans, the vanquishers of the people, 
And now we have the Balaam class, which is the waster of the people. Now, what was the doctrine of Balaam? What was the teaching of Balaam? Well, we haven't got time to look at this morning, but in those three references, the doctrine of Balaam was all about money. Religion for hire. The wages of unrighteousness. And Peter warned about that in his epistles. So here's a group of people who are saying, I'm going to make a full-time job of my work as a bishop or as an elder, and I want you, the congregation, to make sure that you contribute to support me in this work. This is the beginning of this enterprise. You know, but the Thomas was offered a similar kind of role in which the congregation offered to make him a full-time paid minister. And very wisely, he rejected that. He, he needed that independence of thought, not to be reliant upon the wishes of the congregation who were paying him his salary. Because once you do that, you're compromised, aren't you? So this idea of religion for money is now prominent, now starting to rise. It became an awful problem later on with simony, in which the office of a bishop was put on uh, up, up for sale, for auction. Here's the beginnings of that. But more significantly, as far as the apocalypse was concerned, the problem with Balaam was, was that he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And we know from those two quotations that they sent the Midianite women in, which seduced Israel as they offered sacrifices for the dead. What's the use of that? And we know it in the context of the arrangements here in Pergamon that sacrificing to idols, Zeus and the imperial edict was a very real issue. It's in contradiction to the, the, the ecclesial decision of Acts 15, the Jerusalem conference. Uh, but, but you see, there was a, an immoral side as well. There was the fornication. And that was the seduction of the Midianite women. And the tragedy of that incident is, is that they're on the border of the promised land. The border of the promised land. And thousands fell that day. You know, having come so close to the kingdom, having come so close to the coming of Jesus Christ, it would be an absolute tragedy to be seduced right at the very end, wouldn't it? And in addition to that, you, you've got the Nicolaitan problem. Ephesus had the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This ecclesia had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate, absolutely abhor. This is Jesus Christ speaking. Very strong reaction to this kind of teaching and evil. Vanquishes of the people. So what should they do? Well, once again, we have this Greek word repent, change your thinking. You need to face the errorists, you need to handle the errorists, you need to remove the errorists, and you need to do so in the biblical way. But if you don't change, I'm going to come unto you quickly, but fight against them. Now, that, that's interesting, isn't it? 
We're not really told, in fact, what precisely that visitation would involve. But we do know that providentially, the Lord himself would ensure that that group of people would be removed. If you don't remove them, I will remove them. And, and it's really an allusion, isn't it, to, to what happened to Balaam. Balaam was struck by the sword, run through by the sword. And the Lord says, I'm prepared to do that to your enemies. And I'll use the sword of my mouth with all authority. Now, in conclusion, what was required of this ecclesia was that Phineas-like action. That Phineas-like action, running through with the spear in judgment, the Midianitish princess and the prince of Reuben, was, God said, a declaration of my righteousness. And once the righteousness of God is upheld, then indeed peace and joy can flow from that. If you can do that, I'm prepared to give you immortality. I'm prepared to give you the hidden manner. And I'm prepared to give you a brand new name. If you don't eat the sacrifices of the dead, I'll give you pure manner to eat. If you are condemned by the Romans for standing up for the ways of God, I will give you the pebble of acquittal. Your brand new name. And I think there'll be a literalness to that, brothers and sisters. I think that there will be a literalness to that, that, that all of us will get a, a new divine name. No longer Roger or Fred or Louise, but a divine name, which incorporates divine principles. And only ourselves will experience that. What a wonderful affirmation. A great time of acquittal. He that overcometh. And there are great things to overcome. But if you can overcome... And hold fast to the end. I'll give you a brand new life. Well, we're going to deal with a, a different ecclesia this morning. And uh, I wonder whether you notice in the reading this morning we have a change of format to the letter itself. It's the longest of the letters which the Lord wrote. See, when you come to the last verse, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the ecclesias, that expression, that exhortation, preceded in the previous letters the reward the Lord was offering. But from this point onwards, that format changes so that every letter from now on finishes with that exhortation, let him that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the Ecclesiastes. As if the Lord is re-changing the format to emphasize the fact, listen to what I have to say. Listen carefully to what I have to say. Previously, the letters finished with the encouragement of the reward. Now it's, listen to what I have to say. And that format, I think, is a significant shift in emphasis. Because you see, now with this particular ecclesia, we have an intensification, an intensified description of the Lord in judgment. 
the ecclesia at Thyatira, that's all that's left. It's just a church building, actually. Nothing left to see at all, which is a testimony once more to the, the judgment that the Lord inflicted upon this area of the ecclesial world. It was originally founded in the days of Seleucus I, remember the king of the north time. It was a time when this particular city lay on the opening of the Valley of Lycus, which is a very fertile valley, and it was a natural throughput for armies, and therefore a military outpost was warranted. It's also a very prosperous city at this particular time because it's on a natural trade route. And the only link we really have with the scriptures itself is in relation to Lydia. She was, in fact, a seller of purple from Thyatira. I would have imagined that, having business connections between Thyatira and Philippi, she would have been back and forward across those two regions. And it's likely impossible that her influence was part of the influence of establishing the ecclesia there in Thyatira. In fact, when you read of the diligence of this ecclesia in verse 19, love, service, faith, patience, that that's almost a summary of the ecclesia at Philippi. And I, I suspect that, that her enthusiasm and her warmth and her attention to the scriptures, which Paul so wonderfully commenced, was transferred across to Thyatira, and that became the basis of this wonderful ecclesia to start with. It was truly a remarkable ecclesia, and we're going to see there a tragedy had occurred within its ranks. We're going to find also that as we progress through this epistle, this letter to Thyatira, we're going to see a number of allusions to the times of Jezebel, Elijah, and Ahab. And we're going to see the same kind of classes emerge in this ecclesia and in this epistle as were dominant in the times of Ahab and Jezebel. So I'm sure you can be on the lookout for some of these links that are going to be made. Really quite remarkable. We've, we've traversed allusions back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden. We've traversed allusions back to the wilderness wanderings. We've traversed the time of the giving of the manna, of, of the time of Balaam and Phineas. And now we move, as it were, historically to the times of Ahab and Jezebel. There is a deepening of issues which is now emerging in this particular ecclesia. Thus saith the Son of God. We find, in fact, that's the only occurrence in the book of Revelation, the Son of God. And when you trace that expression through, the Son of God, throughout the, the New Testament, you find, in fact, that it's a very, very multi-dimensional, multifaceted title. It embraces so much. It's an all-encompassing title, and it's a title of absolute authority. This was a military garrison. It knew all about authority, and the very opening expression is the Son of God. And that expression is used, as we have there on the screen, well, of course, he is the complete manifestation of the Father, isn't he? The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. It's also an expression used in John chapter 1 of the king. It's an expression used of the judge in John 5. It's an expression identified with the high priest. So you see, it's an all-encompassing title because this Glorious Son of God is now going to establish himself with absolute authority in this ecclesia and he's going to demonstrate that authority in a remarkable providential way. 
Now, we, we thought the last epistle with the Lord having a sharp two-edged sword was sufficient to get our attention about his judgment. Now look at how much now we have an intensified description of our Lord. I mean, th th this, this becomes the basis of something quite terrifying. So you're reading the Ecclesia, you're reading the letter in the Ecclesia on the Sunday morning, and the Lord is going to introduce himself with fiery eyes burning feet. It's not an auspicious opening, is it, to read to the Ecclesia? And it would have immediately grabbed their attention. We know that eyes represent understanding, don't we? The eyes of your understanding being opened. It's, it's a complete awareness, like Psalm 139 says, that, that God is aware of our thought, though he's afar off. And, and fire itself, of course, we, we, we know to be a symbol of judgment. And, and that's our first allusion to, to the times of Ahab and Jezebel. You see, because Jehu, when he executed judgment, did that which was right in God's eyes. And these same eyes that had looked upon the judgment of Jezebel through Jehu is now looking at this ecclesia. Now, this would have been a, quite, a, quite a sobering introduction to the ecclesia. I'm looking at you with eyes of judgment, fiery eyes of judgment. And, and, and fire, of course, in the scriptures is, is used in two ways. It, it's used to judge the wicked and to preserve the righteous. Daniel's three friends were preserved by fire. But it's mainly a symbol of judgment. And the opening message is, I'm looking, I'm seeing, I'm penetrating... And I have in the back of my mind this sense of judgment coming, of impending judgment. So I want you to listen carefully. Wow, what an introduction that would be to the Ecclesia Thyatira. And then the image intensifies. This expression, feet like fine brass, I won't even try and pronounce the Greek word, but it has this idea of white brass, of glowing incandescence. And you've probably seen documentaries of, of when they bring molten metals out of the furnace, incandescent and glowing, white hot. If they didn't get the message about the eyes, they were now going to get the message about the feet. It's actually an allusion to three Old Testament quotations. The first is the man of the one in Daniel chapter 10. The clash of empires occurring. This is a military expression. This would have been understood by those who understood the background of Thyatira and the military camp encampment of that city. Because now with the clash of empires in Daniel chapter 10, we have the man of the one standing there with this incandescent glowing feet ready to judge the world. It's the figure used of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. Burnished brass, the same kind of concept. As the cherubim go forth from the north to judge the people of Jerusalem for their iniquity. And lastly, it's used in Habakkuk chapter 3. The burning coals are at his feet. And that's the future. When the Lord and his saints go forth from Sinai to Teman. Burning as it, go, as it goes along pouring judgments upon the wicked, the coalition of evil that will descend upon the mountains of Israel in Ezekiel 38 to tread down the wicked. Now, all of that is now being expressed in an ecclesial environment. Well, 
we're not talking about global things here. The Lord is now focusing on the ecclesia. Now you imagine, brothers and sisters, reading that, that there is judgment coming on your ecclesia. I don't think any of us like to look at that and think about it. God did, in fact, issue judgments against ecclesias. You take, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to turn to that this morning. There was a wave of sickness going through the ecclesia at Corinth. Unexpected, unexplained. And there were some deaths. And Paul said, it's because your attitude towards the memorial meeting is so in flagrantly in disregard of the principles, for this cause many are sick. For this cause. And there was a pervading judgment that had gone across the Corinthian Ecclesia because of their attitude towards the emblems. And we don't often think about that, do we? That same language, that same disposition is now going to be channeled against this Ecclesia. It's really quite intimidating, isn't it, when you think about it? Well, we know know that the feet were used to tread down Jezebel in the street. And 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 33, we we, we, we see there the, the wheeling chariot wheels that rode over Jezebel was the end. So the feet had been used in judgment before in the context of this woman Jezebel. Now, I say it was a remarkable ecclesia because when you read verse 19, I know thy works and love and service and faith and patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first, this is an amazing group of people. It's in contrast to Ephesus who started well and needed to get back to their first works. Here is an ecclesia that was growing in enthusiasm and love and service And the end result when John was writing was greater than when they first commenced ecclesial work. It is an astounding ecclesia, growing, enthusiastic. I know thy works and thy love, their unstinting service to others. John talks about that love in his first epistle, particularly the practical outworking and care that we as brethren and sisters ought to show one to another. Love indeed, in words should I say, it's love indeed. That was full, the ecclesia was full of that, and it was recognised by the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. And, and that group of people in the ecclesia, we could parallel them with the Obadiah class. Remember Obadiah in the days of Jezebel? Uh, he was the one that hid 50 prophets in a single cave, and he was moving the prophets backwards and forwards through this cave to hide them from Jezebel. Now, now you think of the logistics of hiding a hundred men and switching them around and like pawns on the chessboard to try and evade the persecutions from Jezebel, an astounding, astounding demonstration of love. So it was with the Ecclesia. Thy service... They serve by love. You walked into that ecclesial hall and you could see a buzz and excitement about it. The Bible classes were going well. People were ministering and serving each other, caring and sustaining each other. Wonderful group of people. And, and that's the expression that 
is used of Elijah, my servant. And he prayed, didn't he, that Israel may know that I am thy servant. There's a sense of service that Elijah gave to the nation. And he's reflected, as it were, in that class of people as well. Thy faith. You know, just keep your hand here. Come to Romans chapter 4. There's a remarkable thing about faith. And sometimes we don't appreciate the power of faith. Now, here's Abraham. Promised a seed, incapable of producing it. In verse 18, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, and here's the point I want to make, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded what God had promised he was able also to perform. What faith does, brothers and sisters, is, and this is why it's so God-honoring, is it's a recognition that we cannot solve the problem, that we cannot humanly solve the problem and therefore our implicit trust gives God the glory that's what faith does it honours God by giving him the glory and when we come back to Revelation 2 that's precisely what was noted about these people faith I mean all the believers had faith but, but there was an intensity of strength of faith giving glory to God That was what Elijah's prayer was all about, wasn't it? Hear, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people may know that thou art Yahweh, God of Israel, giving glory and honour to God. Thy patience, their endurance, staying the course. And endurance is not just stiff British upper lip. Endurance is enduring in well-doing, says Paul in Romans 2. It's, it's a consistent well-doing when everything's going wrong. That's the endurance of Scripture. It's an endurance like Naboth, who refused to give the inheritance that he'd been given by Almighty God to this perfidious and evil king. Patiently enduring patiently tending that vineyard every year, never, never giving it to this man. And finally, their works. Repeated, because that was a dominant, active, vibrant ecclesia. A little bit different to Ahab, isn't it? Who sold himself to work evil. Now, you look at that ecclesia, brothers and sisters, and if the letter had stopped there, you would have thought this is a great place to be, wonderful place to be. But then comes the nevertheless, and I think this is a massive warning to ecclesias, that we can be vibrant, and we should be, we can be loving, and we should be, we can be increasing in our spirituality, and we should be. But there is a responsibility upon ecclesias, a great responsibility for ecclesias, a nevertheless responsibility for ecclesias. 
that when error appears amongst our midst, we must deal with that. Now, now that's not my perception of this epistle. This is what the letter is saying. And you can't use the vibrancy of the ecclesia to excuse the responsibility of not dealing with that. And we're going to see how seriously the Lord viewed this defect in this ecclesia. It's a huge warning, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, you know, we, we have seen the neverthelesses, haven't we, in chapter 2 and verse 4 in relation to Ephesus. We've seen the but in verse 6. We've seen the but in verse 14. And now we have the nevertheless. And it's a serious issue that the Lord is seeking this ecclesia to resolve. Despite all their wonderful service and their vitality, the preservation of the truth, the doctrine, we saw that in exhortation in Titus, the common faith, the doctrine, that is the critical foundation upon which our association relies. You remove that foundation and any service and love, tragically, is deficient. Nevertheless, the diagonal says, I have this against thee. And what was the problem? Well, here she is. She's the problem. And the problem was, was that she was permitted influence in that ecclesia. Thou sufferest. And as we have there, the Greek expression means to permit, to be left alone. But like Ahab, the weak husband who couldn't control his wife and just let her be. Now I'm going to make a serious point here, brethren and sisters, because you see, there are two ways that we can handle error. We can, in a brotherly way, and in a godly way, and in a scriptural way, we can handle that. We can discuss it with the brother with a, the intent of redeeming that brother. And we deal with that issue. And the other way is, is we just turn and suffer it. Now, which do you think is correct? We acquiesce. We don't deal with it, and therefore we suffer it. We, we let it brood in the background there. And it's the second one the Lord is actually condemning the ecclesia for. You're not tackling the issue. And tacitly, you are supporting it because you're suffering it. Now, now I, I, I think that that is a very powerful lesson for us to learn. It is not easy to engage, is it, when error is there. It's not easy to confront brethren who have wrong ideas. We're talking fundamental issues, of course, doctrinal issues. It's not easy. It is a challenge. It takes courage to do that. And it's much, much easier just to let it slide, to suffer it. And this was what the ecclesia was condemned for. I think it's a serious point the Lord is making to this ecclesia. <coughs> a woman, well, a woman is a symbol of a religious entity. She was originally a chaste virgin in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul feared that the, the subtlety of the serpent deceived Eve so that 
The ecclesia's minds will be corrupted through the simplicity that's in Christ, through false teaching. Her name means she dwells not. And I have there a quotation from the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7 talks about the harlot. And, and the point in Proverbs chapter 7 is she's never home. She dwells not. She's loud and she's abroad. She's away from home, never home. She dwells not. Always interfering with other people's business. This is the harlot which was used by this figure of speech, Jezebel, she dwells not. And of course she becomes eventually the church. She is the prototype of the church. She becomes that woman Jezebel, that harlot of Revelation 17. So we have the beginnings, the seeds of this horrific apostasy. If, if only the Ecclesia had dealt with that issue in AD 96, we possibly would never, ever, ever have had the harlot of Revelation 17. This is serious. It certainly is serious. And that's why the Lord was so concerned with Guinness Ecclesia to do the right thing. Well, Jezebel, she's a queen. She had high social standing. An ardent idolater. Do you know that in, in all of the approaches that Elijah made, there was not one single confrontation with Jezebel. She was beyond redemption. Elijah could at least perhaps touch Ahab, but Jezebel never. There's not one confrontation of Ahab to Jezebel. She is beyond redemption. Ruthless persecutor. Absolutely ruthless. Domineering and manipulative wife. Cunning schemer. Proud. And she loves the makeup. Even by being threatened, she still puts the makeup on and thinks that her personal appearance is going to win Jehu over, how foolish she was. And the elders of Thyatira were really being encouraged to, to look at Jezebel's life and to understand the judgment that God had meted out to her and the elders of the Thyatira Ecclesia were being asked to consider to do the same thing, to deal with that issue. Don't just let it slide. Don't suffer it. She called herself a prophetess. She is self-appointed. When Paul went around the ecclesial world, he appointed spirit elders. They were divinely appointed. This group stands up and appoints themselves. No authority from God whatsoever. And, and when you look at history, we, we find, in fact, that <clears throat> from the area of Thyatira came this, uh, this uh, heresy called Montanism. Now, Montanus was a... Uh, a, a man who arose, an influential man in the second century AD, and, and he claimed to be the, the comforter of, of John that Jesus mentioned. And although he believed in the millennium, he laid a great stress on spirit gifts. Even though the spirit gifts had been withdrawn, he still maintained that he had the spirit and therefore was a prophet. So, so, so here we have the beginnings of this kind of movement Tragic, isn't it, to see that develop from this small group in the Ecclesia. And she had a deliberate policy, a deliberate policy to teach. Within the Ecclesia, she 
who's she as this group of, of uh, heretics, had the ability to be able to run their, their own classes and, and, and to run their own instruction processes and to take control of, if you like, of the education of the ecclesia. They were out to teach. And, and Paul talks about that, doesn't he? The influence of teachers having itching ears. Teachers bringing false teaching into the ecclesia. And here it is. And, and, and you look at the ecclesia and you think, well, it's vibrant, it's loving. It's enthusiastic, but it's got in its bosom this group of people who have a different agenda, a different policy, and that policy is being allowed to continue, and it's going to seduce people. You know, the, 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 these people were charismatic teachers. And these people were bold, persuasive. You were drawn to them by their personality, and that very act seduced brethren sisters who ought to have known better. And, of course, the people affected were my servants. And that expression, my servants, is also the expression used of the prophets in the time of Jezebel. My servants, the prophets. These were the people that Jezebel sought to extinguish in every facet that she possibly could. Wow. If ever there was an emblem and a figure of evil, it's this woman Jezebel. And, and her influence was, was, was very much the same as, as the problem in chapter 2 and verse 14 in relation to Pergamos. That the imperial cult that expected you to sacrifice to idols and all the immorality involved in that was now part of this ecclesial environment as well. There was a campaign. Oh, look, not going to do any harm just to put a bit of snuff of incense to recognise that Caesar is God. You'll be okay. No problems. And we can continue with the, with the after party, if you like. And Brennan was seduced to say there's nothing wrong with that. Fornication... Idolatry, that's the Jezebel environment. As we have there, the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcraft, which are so many. Without going into any detail, there is a very significant comparison with the woman Jezebel and the harlot mother. And as you can see there from the chart, that the qualities and characteristics of this woman, now allowed to be unfettered, now allowed to actually develop and mushroom, eventually turn into this horrific monster in Revelation 17, a dominant harlot system that would dominate Europe. No wonder the Lord was there with fiery eyes and burning feet. This had to be dealt with. You know, you look at the first century, brethren and sisters, and you, th and you think... How would we have coped in that first century environment? As I mentioned yesterday, the apostles had all virtually died off. John was remaining, would have been a very old man, a very respected man. But, but nevertheless, a whole generation had been reared in ecclesial life without the influence of the apostles. And the spirit gifts were beginning to wane. There was no passing on of the gifts. And as I mentioned before, the very charismatic people began to populate the ecclesial life. 
And we find that there's a certain distinctive quality about these people. They were very clever. They were men-pleasers. Couldn't do enough for you. But they were highly manipulative as well. They, they were smooth speakers. Phrases rolled off the tongue quite readily. And they were assuring people prosperity rather than adversity. That's a very smooth doctrine to think about. Everything's going to be okay. God will bless you. Don't worry. Trust me. Uh, we find that, that there was also this disposition to pour scorn on the righteous. Now, we probably come across some people like that, don't they? they? They can't defend their own position, but they certainly can heap scorn on those who are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing. They leave, but their knowledge is insufficient, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Sound great, eloquent, but there's no substance in the teaching. They're very happy to play off key brethren, key sisters, fostering disunity in the group. Persuasive, Case of Crete, unruly, out of control. A show of wisdom, intellect, intelligent. And love to have people around them to follow them. Now how do you think you and I would deal with those kind of people in the ecclesial environment? I mean, I mean generally as a community, brethren and sisters, we are a meek and humble Community of people, generally speaking, I'm saying. We don't embrace conflict. But, but how would we go dealing with these kind of people? It wouldn't have been easy at all when you think about the influence they had. And that common characteristic was mushrooming all over the place by the time John wrote in AD 96. He was asking Ecclesiastes to grasp the nettle and to stand up for what was right and true. It's interesting that in verse 21, Jesus said, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. And it's most likely that the writings of John, for example, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd epistles of John, and the labours of faithful brethren who tried to warn the Ecclesiastes from the epistles that Paul had written and Peter had written previously, that, that this was the opportunity that was being presented to these people to change, to repent. There's our word repent again. It's happened four or five times in, the, in these epistles. Change. Change your paradigm. Change your outlook. Change your thinking. Change your works. But change. And, and tragically, like all of these events, this... Was, was perceived as just the opportunity for the opposition to grow and grow and grow. It happened in Revelation chapter 9 when the judgments fell upon the eastern part of the empire. They repented not of their fornication or of their idolatry. And, and if judgments not executed against the wicked speedily, it's the opportunity just to increase that wickedness. And the Lord said, well, well you've had 20, 30 years of this kind of material pointing out your errors. And, and that's me, said Jesus. I, I have given you the space. 
I've given you the opportunities. Now, that was misinterpreted by the group as, I can do what I like. But from the Lord's perspective, it was the time of change being offered. So verse 22, the Lord now begins to assemble the judgment that's about to happen upon this ecclesia. Behold, he says, I will cast her, that is this group of awful seducers, into a bed. We've now moved from the bed of immorality, fornication and evil, to a bed of affliction and judgment. There's an appropriateness about that symbol. Her and those that commit adultery with her. So there's two groups of people here. There is the teachers, the false leaders, the proponents of this doctrine, and all those people who are now moving from one side of the ecclesia to the other side of the ecclesia to follow that influence. Teachers and taught. Her and those that have committed adultery with her. And that great tribulation was, was the same tribulation, the ten days tribulation mentioned to the ecclesia at Smyrna. So God was going to use the emperor Trajan to shape the ecclesial world in judgment. And we learned from Smyrna that that ecclesia, specifically that ecclesia, would bear the brunt of imprisonment. It wasn't mentioned to other ecclesias, although they would be affected, but that ecclesia specifically was about to be targeted, Smyrna. Now God says, or Jesus says, that I'm going to do exactly the same with this element in the ecclesia of Thyatira. Unless... They repent. Now, 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 how gracious is God? How gracious is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's given them opportunity to change. They, they, they haven't responded to that. And he's saying, well, look, this, this is your last opportunity. I'm going to bring judgment upon the, this whole ecclesial world. I'm going to shake the ecclesial world to its very foundations. And it will certainly shake out who's right and who's wrong. But if you change, if you repent then that's not going to happen to this group of people in the Ecclesia. It's incredible when you think about it. All the damage they're doing, they still, at the very last hour, are given an opportunity to change. I will kill her children with death. Now, you normally kill people with death, but, I mean, clearly there is a specific type of death here, and it's a reference back to the time. This is how Jehu handled... Jezebel, Jehu ran over her, and all her progeny died violent deaths at the hand of Jehu. And all those that followed her, remember the incident when Jehu said, bring all the prophets of Baal into the house of worship and just make sure there's no believers amongst them, give them a special garment like a fluorescent vest, so we can identify them. And there they are in the church, and as they're in the church, he set fire to the whole church. Violent death. Now, you're a member of the Ecclesia, and you're, you're listening to this, you're thinking, this is absolutely astounding. Violent death? Violent, violent death. For these people who are seducing my servants... And if ever there was a warning to stay away from that group, this was it. 
And I think this is the, this is the fulcrum of the epistle, the, the, the key point of this, that all the ecclesias, all the ecclesias shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. Now, now what, is, what, what is the nub of this point? Well, firstly, the reins or the kidneys and the heart are symbols, aren't they, used frequently in the scriptures. The, the reins or the kidneys, that which represents the deepest thoughts and feelings, the, the emotional part, you know, feel cramps, feel it in, in, in your kidneys, as it were. And the heart, of course, is a place of intellect and understanding in the scriptures. I search that, come back to that in a moment. So the question we ask is this. How would the ecclesial world know from the judgment that was being executed that the Lord himself was scouring the hearts and emotions of all the ecclesias? How would he know? And I think the answer comes in this way. We've seen that Smyrna is going to be affected specifically by this judgment. Not other ecclesias, although other ecclesias would be involved in that judgment, that ten years persecution, but Smyrna specifically would be. And now we're being told that a specific group within the Thyatiron Ecclesia would in fact be judged by this persecution. And what the Lord is saying is, is that think about this ecclesial world. I'm going to bring judgment upon the righteous in Smyrna, and I'm going to bring judgment upon the errorists in Thyatira. Not the ecclesia in Thyatira, the errorists in Thyatira. And, and because the distinction is being made between both of them, it, it would have got the ecclesial world a buzz. Why is that? How is that? Why is God going to specifically say, Smyrna, you are going to receive imprisonment and punishment, and, and Thyatira, you, you're actually going to escape that, but the errorists are going to actually be affected. And that distinction was a, was a message to the ecclesial world that the Lord was completely in control and was fully searching the hearts and motives of every member in the ecclesial world. It's precisely what he did in the days of Amos. You may recall in the days of Amos, God caused rain to fall on that city and ten kilometres down the road, this city was in drought. And that pattern was repeated across the northern parts of Israel. And, 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 and it would have got the, the whole group of that northern kingdom thinking, what is God doing? And clearly, God is in control. These are not just random events. And they were designed to make the Ecclesia sit up and take cognizance of their responsibilities. Now... rewarding people according to their works and to their thoughts and plans is a divine principle. It outworked itself in the days of Jezebel. For example, Jezebel cut off God's prophets, so Elijah cut off Jezebel's prophets. Jezebel wrote letters to condemn Nabal. Jehu said, I want you elders to write letters and invite the prophets of Baal and the kingdom and the kings and princes to a special feast. So you see, God rewards people according to how they behave. Now, I'd like you to come to Jeremiah 17, because this is where the, the quotation comes from. 
or the, or the principle comes from, Jeremiah 17. And I think we need to think deeply about this. So Jeremiah 17, let's read verse 9 for context. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked or desperately sick. It's diseased. Who can know it? There's a good question, isn't it? We, we hardly know ourselves. We're asked to examine ourselves, but we don't do a good job of that. But God, in verse 10, he does know it. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now that's a powerful verse. So here we are, in ecclesial life, and God examines our motives, why we do things in ecclesial life. He looks at our feelings and emotions, the kidneys, how we feel about ecclesial life and how we feel about each other. And examines all of those things so that he can give to every one of us how we have given to other people. Now, now you just think about that. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, that... that return, if you like, that God is giving happens in this life and sometimes it'll happen perhaps in the future uh, when the Lord comes and judges us. But at some point there is absolutely, absolutely exact justice in that, that how we behave to other people, God will behave to us. Our attitude and disposition will be returned to us. That's precisely what the Lord was doing with the ecclesias in the first century looking at motives and rewarding people, how they were rewarding each other. And if you suffered that Jezebel to exist, then you would receive judgment at the hand of God. So the demise of many false teachers in that persecution, and that persecution was a very great sorting out process. It was a warning to all the ecclesias that the Lord was in control. Though he was in heaven, though he was not seen, he was in control. Let's come to Psalm 18. This principle of God rewarding us according to our motives and our feelings and our attitude to each other. In Psalm 18, this is what the psalmist says. Psalm 18, verse 25. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself froward. He will reward us as we have rewarded other people. Perfect justice in that. When we come back to Revelation chapter 2, he now turns his attention to the other half of the ecclesia. But unto you, he says, and the rest, now the, the, the Greek word rest means remnant. So, so if, if you want another class of people, this is like the 7,000 who had not yielded their lives to Baal. 
These, this was the remnant. So the U is the arranging group, the, 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 the elders, the star angel of the ecclesia, and the rest, the remnant, are those who actually were following the, uh, the lead of enthusiasm, service and love. So, so the distinction in the groups isn't there. And, and these brethren who resisted or, or, or attempted to, to stand apart from the Jezebel class were a group of people who weren't seduced by the depths of Satan. The depths of Satan. This convoluted, mysterious kind of intelligence, this gnosis, this special knowledge which was flooding the ecclesial world, all sounded deep and spiritual, but it was really the depths of Satan. Instead of really looking at the depths of the things of God, the Jezebel class had introduced another kind of mysterious language, which we know, of course, is part of the Catholic Church today. Mystery, Babylon the Great. Well, I'm talking to you, he said. Stout words of Daniel 7 were beginning. They were beginning to speak the depths of Satan. So the Lord says, look, I, I put a burden on you. As, as I put a burden on all ecclesias, and that burden is to continue in the faith, is to continue sound in the faith, is to develop hope and love, is to make sure that you actually deal with this error in your ecclesia, to shepherd the ecclesia. That, that's the burden that I have placed upon all ecclesias, and, and I'm not going to add to that burden, he says, but I want you to hold fast. I want you to hold fast to what's true and right and proper. And there's our challenge in this age. To hold fast to things which are right and true and proper and doctrinally correct. That's our challenge. Hold fast. Hang on. Hold fast to the faith. To the end is the apostolic command. Well, if they could do that, if they could resist, if they could hang on, if they could tackle the problem, if they could overcome, the Lord was to give them authority over the nations. That's what the word power means. We're in a military city. We're in a military environment. And so now the Lord is going to conclude with military figures of speech. Authority as a king, as a queen, across the nations. What an amazing gift Christ is offering us. And I'll give you a, a, a rulership, a shepherding, as the Greek is, which will be by a rod of iron. There's a careful balance there, isn't there? Shepherding, but iron. Not, not a crook, not a wooden crook, but a, an iron scepter. A capacity, a power, an authority to rule with firmness and yet with fairness. That's yours, he said, if you continue to the end. And, and just like a potter smashes the vessels, I'll give you the authority and power to crush all opposition. It's interesting, actually, that one of the reasons why they smashed pottery in those days was because when a vessel was leaking or, or incapable of being used, if you mixed, or sorry, if you ground the pottery into a into a sort of a fine dust, and you added lime to that, and water to that, they actually lined the cisterns, which held the water in the wintertime. So, so it's an interesting figure of speech. It's not just a, a domination and crushing of the nations, although that's going to happen, but it's going to be in that humbled environment to be able to 
preserve the word of God in the systems around the world, as it were. Isn't that interesting? That's power. Nations. Russia. China. America. Britain. Australia. India. Crushed. Brought to heel. Nations that accuse others of interfering in their foreign affairs, well, we're going to interfere in their foreign affairs all right. And lastly, brothers and sisters, just to conclude, Christ is offering us the morning star, the brightest planet just after dawn. The morning star was the figure of speech used in Isaiah 14 about Babylon. And that star will be replaced by a whole host of morning stars, not just one planet, millions, innumerable multitude, shining brightly in the firmament. I am the bright of the morning star, said Jesus Christ. We will sit with him in his throne forevermore. The question we ask ourselves as we conclude our session this morning is, can we overcome, can we defeat the challenges presented in ecclesial life and to do the right thing. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Lord saith to the ecclesias. Well, the remaining three ecclesias, we're going to see a different series of issues that the Lord's going to address. We saw in our previous studies that the last two ecclesias had significant doctrinal challenges. But the challenges of Sardis and particularly Laodicea are altogether different. And the issues that face Philadelphia are altogether different. And we're going to see, brothers and sisters, that ecclesial life is a little bit like some of ecclesial life here in these last three ecclesias. And we take encouragement and comfort from the words of encouragement that our Lord gives. But there's words of warning as well. Let's take, for example, Sardis. That's what remains of Sardis today. Again, a testimony to the fact that eventually the Ecclesia didn't actually survive. This is an artist's depiction of the ancient city of Sardis. Highly fortified, had a ridge of walls around there which were seen to be the great protection of the city. And we find that the, the background to the city itself provides for us a, uh, an inclination, and a, a background, if you like, of the Lord's exhortation to this particular ecclesia. It was once the great capital of Lydia. It was the first metropolis of Asia and Lydia. It had a great name. It's a powerful city, a dominant city, well known throughout the, the world at that stage. And uh, it was built on the northern slope of Mount Tomolos, 1,500 feet above the Hermas Valley, accessible with very difficulty only from the south. And the natural configuration of the land meant that the other three sides were regarded as absolutely unscalable, and therefore there was no need to place a watch on those three areas of the city, 
Well, that was to prove, in fact, their failure, because their failure to watch meant that the city was breached successfully in the days of Cyrus. 300 years later, the same thing happened again, because they refused to watch. They were confident in their great name. They were confident in the status of the city. And uh, Sardis, in fact, became the, the centre, if you like, of a great wealthy trade. And, and even though Thyatira was known for its purple, the whole of this arrangement was invented here in Sardis, famous for its red dye as opposed to the purple dye in Thyatira. So it had a, a fame, but tragically it had fallen due to its lack of watchfulness. And that becomes the basis for the Lord's words in Revelation chapter 3. Unto the angel of the ecclesia in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, that thou art dead. The seven spirits of God. If you just come back to Revelation chapter 1, Verse 4, John, to the seven ecclesias which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So it's, it's one of the introductory titles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in actual fact, the, uh, the, the Greek is more specifically the seven spirits which is before the throne. That There is only one spirit, but it's a, a manifestation of that spirit in seven different aspects. Seven spirits of God. Well, if you come back to Isaiah chapter 11, we find the seven spirits of God. One spirit in perfect manifestation. So here it is in Isaiah chapter 11. The, the man who is the root and offspring of Jesse... Divine origins and human origins. And in verse 2 we read, The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. So there's the first one, the Spirit of Yahweh. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. There's a second. The Spirit of counsel and might. The fear of Yahweh, which shall make him of quick understanding. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And those seven spirits, those seven qualities, this perfect manifestation of the Son now is before this ecclesia in Sardis. It is a symbol of almighty power, almighty wisdom, the perfect manifestation of the Father in the Son. And that's how the, the Son introduces himself to this ecclesia in Sardis. This man is alive, and this man is all-powerful. And, says Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, he also has in his hand the seven stars. We saw that that was the symbol used of Ephesus, wasn't it? God introduced him, sorry, the Lord introduced himself to Ephesus in that language, that he held the, 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 the eldership of the ecclesias, all brethren and sisters in his hand, caring for them as a shepherd. But nevertheless, that right hand was also a right hand of righteousness. So it was an invitation to Sardis, to look at the letter specifically for Ephesus and to emulate the example of Ephesus, but to go one stage further. Now, brethren and sisters, when we read at the end of verse 1 that this ecclesia was dead, 
you know, that would have been one of the most chilling condemnations you could possibly imagine a cliche to receive. And you can imagine the members of the congregation listening to this letter. You have a reputation. That reputation was in the past. But now you are absolutely dead. I think that would have been the most terrible condemnation to hear from Ecclesia, dead. They were busy working. The next verse tells us that they were busy working. They had works, but they were dead. In what sense was their work dead? Well, we have three quotations there which all talk about dead works. Now, the first one in Hebrews chapter 9 were the works of the law, offered perfunctorily, offered in form without the heart being engaged. And the law, of course, being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, there were no longer any relevance in those sacrifices. Dead works, says Paul in Hebrews 9. They could have possibly been doing that. In James chapter 2, we know that faith without works is dead, a corpse. But it's the last quote I want you to turn to with me, please. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I think this is probably a little bit closer to the truth. <coughs> Talking about actually widows, but it, but it gives us a sense of, of dead works. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, she liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. So here was a person, here was an ecclesia that was doing things, but it was in their own pleasure, wasn't the will of the Father, and although that busyness in ecclesial life was occurring, it was absolutely dead. You know, it, there would have been a lot of self-examination in that meeting that morning as that letter was read. This is from our Lord. This is his assessment the perfect manifestation of the Father looking into your ecclesial life and pronouncing it dead. So, so what can they do? And, and, and the wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is, is that he was prepared to offer a solution to a dead ecclesia. He hadn't yet written them off. And therefore, in verse 2, his counsel was, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In actual fact, the, the Greek is become watchful. They weren't watching. They hadn't been watching. Become watchful. And, and we saw, didn't we, Brother Jordan's evening on watchfulness, the need for watchfulness to be awake. The thief is coming. And those exhortations from, from Matthew and Mark are exceedingly relevant. Now, come across to Revelation 16. See, Revelation 16 is the exhortation for our generation. Our generation. It's squeezed in between the great day of God Almighty in verse 14 and verse 16, the gathering of the nations in Armageddon. It's deliberately inserted between those two verses. This is our exhortation for this generation. And look at the words that are used. It's, it's the language used for the Sardis Ecclesia. Behold, I come as a thief. 
Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, if all of the ecclesias that the Lord could pull language from and place it in a context for our days, it's the language used in Sardis. And also, we're going to see Laodicea as well. You see, but it says we have to be awake, we have to watch. And it's not just looking, it's actually watching and warning and responding. Responding to the pressures and evils out there, whether it's theistic evolution, whether it's sister speaking, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's the philosophies of postmodernism, and all of these waves start coming towards us. And it's not just a matter of watching them go by and having an effect upon the ecclesia, we've got to do something about it. Be watchful. Be watchful, be on the alert is the language of Sardis and also Revelation 16. The Lord knew precisely the environment that we'd be living in. And strengthen the things which remain. Young's literal translates that, strengthen the rest of the things that are about to die. So, so it, wasn't, it was dead, but, but there was still a little bit of life kicking in the ecclesia. Just a little bit of life there kicking around in that ecclesia. And the Lord grasps hold of that group and says, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain, seize them, hold on to them, make them fast, make them stable. And sometimes, brethren and sisters, in ecclesial life, that's all we can do. <laughs> to take our foundations, to take our fundamental doctrines, to take the example of the pioneers who've left a wonderful trail in their way and to hold fast those things which are right and true. Now, how do you strengthen? I come across to Romans 16. The same word is used in Romans chapter 16 and verse 25. Now, to him that is of power to, and there's our Greek word, strengthen, to strengthen you. How? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the secret which was kept secret since the world began. How do you strengthen an ecclesia? How do you strengthen brethren and sisters? You get them back to the word of God. You inject enthusiasm in your Bible classes and your Sunday school teachings and the relevancy of your exhortations and the, and the power of the public lectures. And the power of the word of God is how you strengthen that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 16. The revelation of the mystery, the power of the gospel, that's the only thing. And, and we have that responsibility as individuals, brethren and sisters, to inject that enthusiasm back into our ecclesial life. That's how we strengthen the things that remain. And though this ecclesia was virtually dead, there was a little stirring of life, and the Lord is fanning that into flames. You see, in verse 2, as I said before, they were very busy. But he had not found their works perfect before God. And I think there's a, a little clue there about the motive by with which they were actually working. Now, that word perfect, as we've got there, incomplete. Incomplete. But that expression, before God... It's a little expression that gives us a clue that they were doing them for themselves. 
uh, that God wasn't in that work, that they weren't doing it to the glory and honour of God. Come across to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, These are some of the most haunting words the Lord could ever speak at the judgment seat. Matthew chapter 7. By their fruits you shall know them, he said. But, But here's some fruit which is altogether sour. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Work iniquity. They're out there preaching. They're out there healing. They're out there using the spirit gifts in many wonderful ways in, in, this, in this first century environment. But they weren't doing the will of my Father which is in heaven. It wasn't before God. It wasn't with God in mind. And even though they professed to say, in thy name, it actually wasn't occurring to the glory and honour of God. Working iniquity. Their works were not perfect. They were incomplete. I find those words very challenging in Matthew chapter 7. That we can be busy and occupied, and so we should be, in the things of God. But to what motive can we attribute those works in our life? Are we doing it for the right reasons? Exceedingly challenging words, aren't they? Let's come back to Revelation chapter 3. I have found, it's, it's been an inquiry, and I have found wanting. So, again, the Lord addresses this stirrings of the ecclesia. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Remember how you receive the truth. The Lord said in Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, uh, he said in fact, uh, it's how you hear that's significant. For those who have, it shall be given. For those who don't really want to hear, it shall be taken away. Remember how you came into the truth. Remember how you embraced the word of God with enthusiasm. Remember your baptism. Remember how all of that original dynamics in your life started off. Just remember that to come back to that. And hold fast. And and again, we have this this exhortation. We've come across this before, haven't we, in the previous ecclesia. Hold fast. Hang on. And again, the, the word keeps reappearing in the apocalypse, translated in different ways. <laughs> to keep, to hold, to hold fast. The stirrings of life were very, very small indeed. Fan those into flame. If you don't watch, he says, I'll come as a thief. And that's precisely what happened to the city. Cyrus and Antiochus took the city because they weren't watching. They had a name. They thought they were impregnable. They had a reputation which was built on the past. And they they thought that was enough. And just as those forces crept over the walls because there was no sentries posted, so the Lord Jesus Christ says, keep watching. And again, Brother Jordan pointed out that the other night that the, the need for watching and the thief is about to come is critical in our age to understand that the Lord is near. 
We're living at the end of the last days. We don't know precisely the day or the hour, but we know we're in the epoch of the end of the last days. The thief will come. Thessalonians talks about that. Time of destruction for the world, but not for us. With our eyes open, our understanding open, we appreciate that the Lord is near. And, and you know, I think it's very difficult in this, this age of busyness and this age of commerce and this age of having to make ends meet, to, to be mindful of the fact that, that one day it's all going to disappear and change. And the clock will stop. He that is unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And when that clock stops, brethren and sisters, the thief will have arrived. Watch. It's a powerful exhortation, isn't it? A powerful exhortation. Now, in verse 4, the Lord said that I, I have a few brethren and sisters. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, I have a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So once again, we have this small remnant, a very small remnant, a few names. When that letter was read in the Ecclesia, Suppose there was a congregation of 50, 100, I don't know how many, and you're told that you're dead. And then the Lord offers a little bit of hope, and he's saying, I've got a few names. You can imagine every brother and sister in that meeting would say, is that me? Am I one of those few names? Am I part of this remnant that bears the Father's name? And there'd been a whole heap of soul-searching in that meeting. Were they dead or were they alive? Were they part of the remnant or part of the majority? Now, nakedness, of course, represents sin, doesn't it? And, and in Jesus Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness through baptism. And we stand in our baptism with clean and white garments. But as Jude points out, the garments can be spotted by the flesh. You know, there's nothing so unseemly as a lovely white garment with a great black splodge on the front. Nothing more unseemly than that. And that's the defiling of the garments. Now, this group, and sisters, I take off my hat to this group of people. I don't know whether I could exist spiritually in an ecclesia that was dead. I don't know whether I could do that. I confess I would find it very, very challenging to be in an ecclesia that was dead and to maintain an integrity and a walk and to ensure that my family was unaffected by the deadness of the ecclesia. I would find that exceedingly difficult. And yet there were a few, a few who were prepared to stay behind, a few who were prepared to, 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 to try and make a difference, who were trying to lift this, this watchfulness, this this remembrance, this, this, this back to the foundations, this strengthening. And, and I take off my hat to those people who can do that because I wonder whether I'd have the courage and, and the stability to do that, brothers and sisters. We don't know how long they last in that ecclesia. 
We don't know how they survived, but they did. And the Lord looked at that group and said to them, well, because you haven't defiled my garments, you're going to walk with me in white. That little expression, with me, is so powerful, isn't it? They shall walk with me in fellowship, in completeness. You know, it's the language, isn't it, used right back in Genesis where Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, Abraham walked with God. It's that same kind of Old Testament concept, with him, because we're with him in every aspect. Chapter 3, verse 20, we sup with him. In chapter 3, verse 21, we sit in the throne with him. In chapter 14, we are with him in Mount Zion. In chapter 17, verse 14, those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And finally, in chapter 20, verse 6, we are with him reigning for a thousand years. Just a little word, but it would have meant so much to that small, small remnant. Those names, those who had the Father's name upon the forehead, those who had the courage to stay behind. Incredible group of people, incredible group of people. And the Lord called them out. And he said, you're going to walk and I'm going to give you white raiment, a symbol of the righteousness of the saints. A symbol later on of immortality. The priests wore white in the tabernacle. And the Lord's saying, you're going to be clothed like that. Like Joshua, whose garments were removed from filthy garments to clean white garments, who would walk with the angels in Joshua chapter 3. All of those thoughts come to mind. And he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life because they have been impressed with my name. I'm not going to blot out his name. When every one of us is baptised, our names are immediately written in the register of life. You know, it's a little bit different to the world, isn't it? The world says, if you accomplish, if you do, at the end, I'll give you some reward. What God does is, is that as soon as we are baptised, he writes our name in heaven, enrolled in citizenship. We pass from death to life, says Paul. You have everlasting life, says John. All that language has that connotation, that your name's there. It's a tremendous incentive, isn't it, that God writes our names there. He gives us the crown, as it were, already. But there is a danger that in, in this symbolic register that our lives will prove unworthy of actually having that name remaining in that register. And there's a danger that it can be erased. And the clear implication is, is that for this small remnant, their names would not be erased, but that implied that the rest of the ecclesia, the dead ecclesia, would have their names erased from heaven. This is serious, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Our ecclesial life, our individual contribution to ecclesial life, has a manner of bearing for our eternal well-being. And that's the message which the Lord is giving to Sardis at this time. There's two books, an everyday register and the book of the life. And this is metaphoric language. We know that to be the case, don't we? God is a remembrance, so he doesn't need a book. But for, for us as mortals to appreciate the, the, the power of that, the terms are used in everyday language. 
Wouldn't it be awful, brothers and sisters, to arrive at the judgment seat and the register's opened and the books are opened and the Lord goes through the names and he says, I can't find your name. I can't find it. It's gone. I think it would have been a very, very sober meeting when this letter was read. They're searching their hearts. Am I one of those people who are the names of Sardis? The record says that when I find that name, I will read it out before the Father and the angels. You, you imagine that incredible ceremony. We, we, we have a multitude, an innumerable multitude of accepted presences at the judgment seat, and every name is going to be read out and confess before the Father and his angels. Imagine that. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, brother sister so-and-so, and the name catalogued and registered and read out. What an amazing thing, and, and, and some names will be missing. Those who've contributed to the death of their ecclesia, who refuse to watch, who refuse to hold on, who refuse to strengthen the things that remain. It's, it's exceedingly sobering, brothers and sisters. The letters move on to the next ecclesia. An altogether different ecclesia. It had its struggles, it had its difficulties. The Lord found no manner of condemnation to this group of people, Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. It was noted in the ancient world for its educational influence in the region. What happened was, was that when the Greeks moved into the area of western Turkey, there was a need to promote Greek culture and Greek education amongst western Turkey. And it was Philadelphia, actually, that was selected as the city that began to actually promulgate that. And that becomes a little bit of a background to, to what the Lord is going to speak about in relation to Philadelphia. From, from, from an ecclesial perspective, we know from verse 9 that they had gone through precisely the same trauma that had happened in the ecclesia at Smyrna. The ecclesia had split. The Antichrist had left them. The synagogue of Satan, the adversary, had been formed just like it had been with Smyrna. They had tackled the errorists. The errorists had left them. And now this small group of people left in Philadelphia, a little strength, was now in need of encouragement. So the Lord commences with these words, These things saith he that is holy and true. A bit of a contrast to the liars of verse 9. Now this expression actually doesn't come from chapter 1, it comes from chapter 6. So let's come across to chapter 6. Now in chapter 6 we come to the fifth seal. And under the fifth seal, there was immense persecution. And in verse 10 of chapter 6, those who were persecuted are personified as appealing for help. And they cried in verse 10 with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, 
holy and true. That's the expression used in relation to Philadelphia. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And, and I think, brothers and sisters, the use of that title is telling us that, that after the Ecclesia split and after the, the synagogue of Satan was, was dominant in the region and just a small group of brothers and sisters were left, that, that there was a sense of we need to be vindicated. How, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will that not avenge our blood upon the earth? Uh, this Ecclesia was in need of being encouraged by saying you did the right thing. I know there's been a traumatic ecclesial division. I know the aorists have left you because they're not of you. I understand that, said the Lord. But, but I'm going to vind- I am going to vindicate you. I'm going to tell you you did the right thing. I am holy and true. And I think that's the basis for that particular title. And he said, I, I hold a key in my hand. It's a special key. It's a key that belongs to the house of David. Now, that, of course, comes from Isaiah 22, which we recently did in our readings. We're not going to turn to that this morning. But we find that that in Isaiah 22, we have the Assyrian besieging Jerusalem. And there's all sorts of reactions in the city. We saw some of those in our reading the other day. There were the fearful in verse 3. These were the people who had fled the city without a shot being fired, trying to escape the siege before the Assyrians came the fearful. They were the self-confident. Let's build the breaches. Let's repair the spring without having reference to the God, their maker. They were the fatalistic, parting on the rooftop. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let it come. I'm ready. The fatalistic. They were the faithless people like Shebna. And and you know, brothers and sisters, that crisis And pressure exposes the real Christadelphians, doesn't it? I mean, the the real us emerges under trial, and sometimes the the picture's not very pretty at times. It's exactly what happened here. But the last of that class of people was the Eliakim class, called the Father, the one on whom was hanging all the vessels of the house of David. And to him was given the key. No one else. Shebna relinquished that through his faithfulness and Eliakim took that upon him. And those three classes of the faithless Shebna, the faithful Eliakim who stands as a a type of Jesus Christ himself and the house of David which was the Ecclesia. And the Lord says, I have that key. That key that was used by Eliakim to open the doors of access to the king to shut the doors on those who would not have access to the king, of allowing access to the throne of grace. He said, I've got that key. I am in absolute control. I want you to understand, brethren and sisters of Philadelphia, I have that power and authority, access to the Father. In fact, I have an access to the grave. And I have an access which is going to allow you to actually do something quite remarkable. Let's come to Revelation chapter 3. In verse 7, it's a key that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. So I have the authority now, and the power, to be able to open something for you, and no one's going to shut it. And that is an open door. 
I, I know your works. I, I know you've been through ecclesial division. I know your labours before you. And I'm prepared to open a door for you. Now, that language of the open door is the language of proclaiming the gospel. We're not going to turn to it, but in Acts 14, 27, Paul came back to the ecclesia after his missionary journey and said that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is an educational city. This is a city which was used by the Greeks to promulgate Greek culture. And the Lord, using that as a background, says, I'm going to open the door and I'm going to keep it open and I'm going to make sure it remains open. All you need to do is to walk through that door and proclaim the truth of the gospel in this region. Seize the opportunity. Now, this is interesting, you see, because whilst proclaiming the gospel was part of our ecclesial uh, imprimatur, if you like, this ecclesia specifically was in the best place to be able to push the truth out. We, we know that Paul, for example, was forbidden to preach in the northwest and the northern part of Turkey. It may have been that the Lord is now giving them the open door to, to promulgate the truth in that region that the Spirit forbade Paul to labour in. We know there were some ecclesias up there in Bithynia, which is the northern part of the, of the Black Sea. Imagine that, brothers and sisters. The Lord saying to you, here's an opportunity to preach the truth. I'm going to open the door. You just need to step through. How, how is the effort to proclaim the gospel in our ecclesia? Unfortunately, we live in a very electronic age where, where people, through social media, you know, sort of just cherry-pick our websites. And we need to have the, that website. That we need to have that that. that uh, presence on social media about the truth. We need to do that. But, but that shouldn't stop us physically from actually proclaiming the truth personally. H how is our ecclesial gospel proclamation? I'm sure, and I include my ecclesia at Salisbury as well, we can do better. Here's an open door. All I want you to do is just to walk through that door. The ecclesial division had left the numbers of that ecclesia greatly diminished. Greatly diminished. Thou hast a little strength. Now the Lord saw that and knew that, and, and therefore these words of encouragement were designed to, to lift this ecclesia back into activity. Many had left to form a new meeting the synagogue of Satan. And the Lord now says to these with little strength, I can help you. I can help you. And because you've kept the word of my patience, because you have consistently maintained the truth through all that difficulty, I understand that. But because you've done that, I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to encourage you. You've kept the word, I'm going to keep you. And just like those in Ephesus who have not denied my name, I'm going to ensure that that strength which I'm imparting to you will continue on. It's highly encouraging, isn't it? Now, this is the vindication that the Ecclesia was seeking. <coughs> have we done the right thing? Have we done the right thing in, in 
in allowing these people to form this synagogue of Satan. We can't really stop it, I suppose, but, but have we done the right thing? So what the Lord says in verse 9 is this. He says, Behold, I'm going to make or to give them the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie, that, that they are liars. You, you are right, you are truthful, but they are liars. Uh, and just before we, we look at this, it's interesting that they've actually discovered a synagogue in ancient Philadelphia. Whether it's the synagogue of the Satan, we don't know, but, but there was a synagogue there. So, so obviously Jewish influence, Judaistic influence, was highly dominant in that city. And these Judaizing elements, combining it with the truth, produced a synagogue of Satan. Well, I, I'm going to address this particular problem for you, Philadelphia. And in verse 9, I am going to make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved you. Now, I, I puzzled a lot over this verse. In, in, in what sense, in what sense would there be this recognition by an apostate synagogue of Satan of the truth of the ecclesia? I mean, the, the fact that they left the ecclesia indicates they didn't have the truth. So, 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 so how is this going to happen? And I think, brothers and sisters, that it, that it must refer to the time of the judgment seat. Uh, there is no way that an apostate church is ever going to acknowledge that the ecclesia is right. I mean, the, the divisions occurred. But it would appear to me from this particular verse that, that at the time of the judgment seat, the, these false brethren who are accountable, they knew the truth, they are accountable. Knowledge brings responsibility. And they'll stand before their Lord and they'll be rejected by the Lord. And it would appear that the judgment seat, the Lord is going to say, I'm vindicating these people, I'm granting them immortality, I'm giving them white raiments, that you may know that you are absolutely wrong and that I've loved these people. Now, that's an amazing thing. Not that we seek vindication, not that we seek personal vindication, but as far as the Lord is concerned, there is a rightness about the fact that these errorists who cause so much disturbance, so much evil, will at the judgment seat acknowledge that Jesus has loved these people. It'll be the final thing which they recognize. And it's based on Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. We're not going to go there, but in Isaiah chapter 60, 60, verse 14, the Gentiles who previously have oppressed the Jewish people will be forced back into the kingdom to acknowledge that the children of Israel are God's people. And they'll come and bow before them, recognizing that. And I think that concept, which will see in the kingdom age, will in fact happen at the judgment seat of Christ. And we take the thought to this nth degree, the demonstration that I love this small remnant. You may be in an ecclesia that is a very small ecclesia. You may feel you have little strength. You may feel that you need the encouragement to press on. Well, well, this letter is for you. The door's open. The opportunities are great. We've got to walk through that door and seize those opportunities. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. Remember how we spoke about the other ecclesia, Thyatira, where God examines the hearts and the reins and rewards people according to their works. Well, here's another one of those wonderful just 
symmetrical balances. You've kept my word, I'm going to keep you. The hour of temptation is interesting because this word of patience that they actually kept, faithfully, consistently maintaining truth when error was present, was in fact the bastion in which God would embrace the ecclesia to prevent them from being persecuted. The false teachers would be affected by the hour of temptation, but not the ecclesia. This particular temptation or, or time of trial comes upon the whole earth. Uh, Brother Thomas suggests it's, it's actually different to the Trajan 10-year persecution that was to come on the Ecclesia shortly, but was a worldwide, or should I say Roman Empire-wide persecution. And that didn't happen until AD 250, about 150 years later on. And it was these persecutions that absolutely sorted out Christianity. And many of the Christians who apostatized were affected by that particular time of persecution. So that's Brother Thomas's suggestion on that, a worldwide phenomena. The 10 years under Trajan was mainly Turkey, but this was an empire-wide persecution. So there'll be people hanging on and hanging on and hanging on until finally, AD 250, persecution would strike. And Christ says, I'm going to keep you, protect you from that. Behold, he says, I come... Suddenly, quickly, unexpectedly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So, so, so once again, not only were their names written in heaven, but they had actually been given the crown. You've won. Just make sure no one takes it off your head. Make sure you don't relinquish that. There are parallels, aren't there, that we've seen between the Ecclesia at Smyrna and the Ecclesia at Philadelphia. And those similarities are there just for you to appreciate the, the fact that these two small Ecclesias who'd made the stand against the synagogue of Satan were in a very similar position to each other and the Lord was strengthening that small group. So the promise... What promise could he give them that was relevant to them and would encourage them? He that cometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And when you look at the figure of pillars in the scripture, they are symbols of absolute solidarity, unshakableness. You know, you take Jeremiah, for example. God says, I'll make you a brazen pillar against all the opposition that you can face. And we know the opposition Jeremiah faced. He stood there like an unshakable pillar. There were the apostles who were pillars of the ecclesia of God, giving the stability and support to the ecclesia. And in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, wisdom had, had hewn seven pillars. They were the strength of wisdom. So, see, pillars are a symbol of absolute solidarity. If you can stay solid and stable and dependable now, Jesus Christ will make you a stable, powerful person in the kingdom age. 
you know, there's, there's a, a wonderful psalm that talks about the way in which God will dissolve the foundations of the earth and he will establish the pillars of the world. That's the establishment of the saints. And, and of course, the, the pillars in the temple of my God refer to Jacob and Boaz. These were the two ceremonial pillars that, that stood outside the temple itself. Jacob, he will establish Boaz, strength. He will establish by strong ones. If you remain strong now, I'll give that permanency of strength in the future age. And each of those pillars had a, a chapter, a crown on top. They represented people, kings. I'm going to make you that. I'm going to give you that stability. And you'll no more go out. That's actually a reference to the way in which the priests were ceremoniously uh, appointed for the tabernacle. They had to remain in the tabernacle for seven days. They were not allowed to go out during that ceremony. And because, you see, their, their garments were white, and they were now part of the priesthood of the future age, they would forever remain in the house of God. Just keep your hand here. Come to Psalm 27. This is a, this is a lovely quote, which illustrates this point. It's a psalm of David in which he put his trust in God. In verse 3, though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of Yahweh, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. One thing am I seeking, to dwell in the house of God all the days of my life, to stay in that temple forevermore with a fraternity of an, an innumerable multitude of, of godly people, evermore eternal. What an incredible privilege that is, to stand shoulder to shoulder all of those pillars of faith in that kingdom age, and they shall no more go out. They will continually be part of the service of God. And upon their foreheads is written the name of God. They are now the embodiment. They are name bearers, just like the angels are today. Equal to the Elohim. The perfect manifestation of the Father, because the character has been impressed upon our minds now. And finally, part of a city, an incredible group of people, in whom God seeks to delight in, a group of people made up of a corporate whole from heaven, in the sense that the power comes from God, in a cosmopolitan arrangement, in a glorious city, amongst millions of people. What, what more encouragement could you get than that, brothers and sisters? And finally... I'm going to write my new name upon your life. This is the name by which you'll be known, says Jeremiah, Yahweh our righteousness, Yahweh Sikenu, and the people who've maintained their integrity, their honesty, their holiness, their truth, their righteousness, will in fact receive that glorious and wonderful name. You might be in a small group of brethren and sisters in a small ecclesia, but the encouragement is absolutely staggering. 
if you can walk through the door of opportunity and hold on fast to what's been given, I will make you a pillar in the temple and you shall never, ever, ever leave that wonderful, incredible city. Well, in our final study, we come to the final ecclesia, Laodicea. And I think we all know what Laodicea stands for. There is no mention of Nicolaitans, no mention of Balaamites, no mention of the synagogue of Satan. Their enemy was apathy and indifference. And if ever there is an age, it's the age today that we live in, one of apathy and indifference. We find, in fact, that Laodicea was a very extensive city. In the last five years, actually, they've done significant archaeological excavations, and it is a massive city. It's even thought to be greater than Ephesus, which is saying something. And slowly, this site will be open to the public to see the extent of the wealth of this city. It was truly a monument to civilization. It lay on a very important crossroads in this area of western Turkey, and uh, that made it extremely prosperous. If you have a city on a straight road, prosperous, but when you have crossroads and you fertilise through cross-trade, the money starts to flow in, and this was no exception with Laodicea. In fact, it became an important banking centre, and we know that banking centres in the world become financial hubs, and that was the Laodicean city itself. It was noted for its garments of black wool, and garments becomes a, a question within this ecclesia itself. And also it was famous for the manufacture of collyrium, which was a, a type of uh, eye salve. And of course we are aware, aren't we, of the exhortation the Lord gives in relation <coughs> to anointing the eyes. So, so once again, the, the geography and the history lend some figure to the solution that the Lord has to this ecclesia. In relation to its founding, it was most likely founded by the labours of Paul, who spread the gospel in the surrounding regions, and taken up by faithful brethren. But I'd like you to come to Colossians chapter 4. You see, Laodicea appears in the epistle to the Colossians. And we're going to have some reference later on to this epistle in relation to this ecclesia. Uh, but here it is in Colossians chapter 4. Where in verse 15, Paul says this. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus and the Ecclesia which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the Ecclesia of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So quite clearly the letters like Ephesians and Colossians were circular letters, and they did the rounds. The seven ecclesias would have been involved in, in, in the rounds of those letters. And uh, the, whilst we have no record of the epistle from Laodicea, uh, some think, in fact, that the letter to the Ephesians formed part of the basis for that letter to the Laodiceans. And, and the letters are going to be paramount as we, we look at those, those uh, concepts. So, you see, Laodicea was known. It was on the route 
There was nymphos in the house ecclesia there, and, and over the next 30 years, that would expand into rather a large ecclesia in a very prosperous city. But in Revelation chapter 3, our Lord begins with a very clear note of authority. Verse 14, to the angel of the ecclesia, the later scenes write, these things saith the Amen. And amen in scripture means so be it, or, or faithfulness actually in the Hebrew. And it's drawn from Isaiah 65. Let's just come across to Isaiah 65. And there's an appropriateness as we're going to see about this quotation. Isaiah 65. So here we have it in verse 16. Those that bless themselves will bless themselves in the earth, shall bless himself in the God of the Amen, the God of truth. Rotham translates that, the God of the Amen. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hid from thine eyes. So God is a God of the Amen. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God of truth. And the Lord took that title because he is the manifestation of the Father. And when he appealed to the Laodiceans, he was talking about faithfulness and truth, because that was lacking in the Ecclesia. Now, like all things, there's an interesting context. If you look, at, for example, at verse 12, Therefore will I number you to a sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear. But did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that which I delighted not. So, so you see, God was calling. It's, it's, it's like the letter to the Laodiceans. I'm knocking on the door. I'm calling, but you're not responding. And there was a warning to the ecclesia at Laodicea that they shouldn't follow that example. And verse 13, Therefore thus saith the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my servant shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, and ye shall be ashamed. And that's the very condition which the ecclesia was finding itself in. No truth, no certainty, no faithfulness. And there was this malaise, this wretchedness and miserableness and poverty and blindness. And that's the point of verse 13. The Lord didn't want the ecclesia to be in that situation. He wanted them to be faithful and true. So let's come back to Revelation chapter 2. Thus saith the Amen. And there's a solidity and truthfulness and power behind that expression. I am the Amen. I'm also, he said, the faithful and true witness. And, and, and that's a reference, isn't it, to the trial and the testimony that the Lord gave before Pilate. He was faithful and he was true. And a faithful and true witness is really a powerful witness. It's one who can be trusted. It's one who can be trusted never to misrepresent the truth, not to exaggerate it, not to suppress the truth, to give absolute veracity. And that's exactly what the Lord did on that trial. She stood before Pilate, answered those questions, stood up for what was right. Art thou a king then? Yes, I am. My kingdom's not of this world. I've come, he said, to declare the truth. And Pilate walked away saying, well, what's truth? He was a faithful and true witness. 
you know, that expression, that title appears in Revelation 19. In Revelation chapter 19, he's coming back. And the faithful and true witness that, that, that gave that tremendous testimony of and power of the word of God at his, at his crucifixion, in Revelation 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So the witness now becomes the judge. <clears throat> and the witness of faithfulness and truth now becomes the judge of all the earth. And he is absolutely faithful and he's absolutely true. And those judgments will be absolutely right when he returns. So when we come back to Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> we can determine the steadfastness of this son of God. Because that was what precisely was missing in that ecclesia. And he says, I am the beginning of the creation of God. The word beginning there is that Greek word arche, which means the principal or chief part. He is the first of a long line of wonderful beings in Christ. The principal part. All of creation was focusing and funneling to the creation of this individual. The creation of this individual, the Son of God, raised from the dead and given immortality. Now come to Colossians chapter 1, because that's the language that the Laodiceans would have been extremely familiar with. Remember, this letter was a circular letter sent to Laodicea. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we read this, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's a paradox, isn't it? How can you see something that's invisible? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, of every creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is in advance of all things, and for him all things were created. Everything converges on him. When the heavens and the earth were first made in Genesis chapter 1, God had in his, in his plan a purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring all things under the dominion of that individual. And now that's a reality. And he's standing here with Laodicea and he's saying to them, God is creating. You are his workmanship, he said to the Philippians, uh, to the Ephesians. He is molding and shaping and creating you. It's his work. And I want you to be part of that creation, Jesus is saying. It's based on truth, it's based on faithfulness, it's based on stability, it's based on the Amen. But I want you to be part of this creation. I am the principal part, and you can become a part as well. And God does fashion, he does change, he does mould. But, but tragically, the Laodiceans had really neglected the power of that. So let's come back to Revelation chapter 2. I know thy works, thou art neither hot nor cold. We find, in fact, that if we look at the geography of the region here, we have Laodicea, we have the Lycus Valley, which was very fertile, we have Hierapolis here, and we have Colossae over here. And uh, unfortunately, the water supply to Laodicea was very poor indeed, so they were dependent on piping water from nearby Hierapolis. The hot springs were, were there. Um, 
There was also close by the refreshing springs of, of Colossae, and uh, by the time the water arrived from these two places, it was lukewarm. So it's, it's a, as an analogy there, it was emetic. That is, it, uh, it was vomiting-inducing water. Nothing worse than, than actually having a water that's lukewarm. It really tastes disgusting. And so the very geography itself lends itself to the power of this. He said, I want you either to be hot or cold. Come to Proverbs 25. Cold. Well, this is what Proverbs 25 says. Verse 13. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refresheth the soul of his masters. Snow in harvest rarely occurs. 35 degrees out there, 30 degrees out there, in your case, 22 degrees. <laughs> so the heat of harvest, you don't get snow. You might get a, a shower of rain, perhaps, but you don't get snow. So it is unusual, and that's the point of the proverb, that faithful messengers are unusual. Now, faithful, that's the word that Revelation 2 uses of Jesus Christ. I am the faithful witness. And that word messenger in the Septuagint is agalos, it's angel. So, so we have a direct reference to a faithful star angel. Isn't that interesting? And because of the uniqueness of snow in harvest time, tragically, faithful messengers are few and far between. But the point of it is, is that that coldness, that, that, that snow is refreshing. And that's precisely the point that Lord Jesus Christ said in Revelation chapter 2. He said, he said I, I at least want you to be refreshing. I at least want you to be able to be refreshing. But I can find no refreshment at all in your ecclesial arrangements. None whatsoever. And he said, I, if you can't be refreshing, then, then I want you to be hot. In actual fact, the word is zestos. We get our word zest from that. The root word of that zeo is used of, uh, of Apollos, who was fervent in spirit. That's what I want. Fervency in spirit. That's what I'm seeking. <clears throat> Refreshing or fervency. I, I don't mind which he said. But at least do something. At least do something as this ecclesia was wallowing in this very awful indifference. And the Lord was very clear. Because thou art lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. It's a graphic figure, isn't it? Absolutely graphic figure. Indifference and apathy. Now, this is the danger, isn't it? Come to Zephaniah chapter 1. You know, here is an apathetic ecclesia in Zephaniah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Okay, Zephaniah. So here we are in the days of Josiah, most likely in the days when Jerusalem is about to be rocked by invasion. 
And the chapter goes through all of the different classes of people who are going to be affected by this invasion. And in verse 12, it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish them that are settled on their leaves. This is indifference. That say in their heart, Yahweh will not do good, neither will he do evil. Therefore their goods shall be a booty, their house a desolation. They shall also build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. Total removal of all of the wealth that they trusted in. Settling on your leaves. It's, it's a figure of a barrel of wine, if you like, a cask of wine. And the leaves come and settle at the top and they scoop those out. And here was, here was this ecclesia here, just, just uh, settling on the leaves. Blah. Nothing happening at all. And within their heart, they're saying, oh, Christ won't come. He won't do good, he won't do evil. We'll, we'll just continue life as it is. And you know, brothers and sisters, the tragedy of apathy and indifference is, is that no one wants to do anything. Love you to serve on this, uh, this committee, brother. Sorry, can't do it. A sister, love you to teach Sunday school. Sorry, can't do it. A brother, I'd like you to uh, stand for the platform appointment. No, sorry, can't do it. Sister, I'd like you to, to help with the, uh, with the catering arrangements or the family activities. No, not interested. That is a massive danger. Massive danger. The world itself has trouble filling posts for um, even... Uh, um, volunteers and, and civil duty to, to get people to do anything these days is difficult and it's also true in ecclesial life today committees end up collapsing because of lack of support arranging brethren's positions left vacant because no one's interested people can't get people to do things because not interested have other priorities and that is a massive danger how does the Lord react to that? Look at, look, at that? look at that picture there. A man gagging and vomiting. It's a graphic figure. Is the Lord indifferent to our indifference? No. Not at all. A huge warning, brothers and sisters. I want you to be zealous, hot. Here am I, send me. Yes, happy to serve. Love to do that job. Can't wait to help. That's, that's the attitude we need, brothers and sisters, across our ecclesial life. Those who give themselves, fervent in spirit like Apollos, hot or refreshing. Now that image of God vomiting, and it is a graphic image. I mean, out of, out of the mouth of God comes the sweet word of truth, but now vomiting. And it's used... In relation to the Canaanites, the sickening Canaanite society, immoral to the core. And God said, I'm going to spew them out of the land. And he warned Israel, he said, that if you continue in their practices, with their immorality and their indifference, I'm going to do exactly the same with you. The land will spew you out. That's how God feels about this, how the Lord Jesus Christ, the Amen, feels about apathy and indifference. And it's a plague. It's a plague. Difficult to get people to volunteer to do things which Paul styles the work of the Lord. 
you know, the, the things that we do in ecclesial life, the work of the Lord. It's not just any work. And that's why it's so disappointing to see apathy and indifference. Let's come back to Revelation and chapter 2. Because he said in verse 17, Thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. You know, Think about the response of the Ecclesia. This is absolutely brazen. The Ecclesia has no inhibitions, no embarrassment or restraint by putting up the hand and saying, I'm rich, I don't need a thing. You know, there's a brazenness about this, isn't there? There's almost a boasting about this. And that's frightening when you see that. It's based on Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's come back and have a look at this, shall we? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because uh, the law warned about this kind of disposition. I am rich and have need of nothing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warned them. You see, they just spent 40 years in a desert. And now they were to be brought into a land in complete contrast. They were going to step into vineyards and olive yards fully mature. They were going to step into houses which they didn't have to build. The infrastructure was all there. A massive contrast to go from this scarcity to this plenty. And God warned them. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he said in verse 10, When thou hast eaten and art full, and thou shalt bless Yahweh thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not Yahweh thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. And thou forget Yahweh thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Verse 18, remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which Yahweh thy God swore unto thy fathers this day. It hadn't even dawned on them at Laodicea that the wealth that they were enjoying was not their own. It was not their own. And instead of using that wealth for the benefit of the ecclesia, they simply amassed it and were happy just to stand back and to say, I don't need anything from you, God. Don't need anything. And that's, that is the awfulness of this Laodicean ecclesia. They didn't need God. I'm rich. Let's come to Zechariah chapter 11. Where did this come from? Well, it came from the shepherds of Israel. Zechariah chapter 11. I'm rich. In Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 4, we, we, we have a description of the shepherds. Thus saith Yahweh my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. I am going to destroy this flock. Why? Verse 5, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty, and they that sell them that say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich 
and their own shepherds pitied them not. So what was happening was, was the shepherds were fleecing the flock and saying, God's blessed me, I'm rich. I am rich. That's exactly the cry of the Laodiceans. They were supposed to be elders leading the ecclesia, shepherding the ecclesia, and instead they were declaring their wealth to the world. And the record says, increased with goods. You know where that comes from? Come to Luke chapter 12. The Lord had spoken those words in a parable, Luke chapter 12. Verse 15, he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And that theology cuts right across the world's concept, doesn't it? Wealth means everything to them. Wealth means power, influence, retirement, good times, pleasure. And therefore, the accumulation of wealth is a pursuit of the world. And the Lord says that a man's life doesn't consist of those things. There are more important things than bank balances investments. We have to live, we have to make our way in the world, we're not saying we don't have to do that, but it doesn't become a basis for trust, a basis for absorption and priority. He spoke a parable of them in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? This will I do, I'll pull down my barns, build greater, there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure, but not for himself, but rich toward God. And there was the problem. There was no richness towards God. It was a man who had increased in goods. <coughs> and, and, you know, that philosophy is our world. Growth. There has to be growth. 2% this year. 3% this year. Expand the business. Expand the warehouses. Expand the profitability. Bring in more shareholders. That is the pursuit of the world. And the Lord said that, uh, no, you need to be rich towards God. That there's nothing wrong with wealth per se. When you come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, this is the problem with wealth. Abraham was a very wealthy man. David was a very wealthy man. But here's the problem. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich, those that want to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is a root of all evil, which some, having coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." It's called by Jesus Christ the deceitfulness of riches. Money has this alluring power. And the deceitfulness of the wealth is, is that it means that in the end you become self-satisfied, you don't need God, and you start to trust in that wealth. And that self-satisfaction was breeding constantly within Laodicea. People covered after it. 
lotteries and things like that, where they, they dream of being millionaires and, and it drives them. And Paul says that kind of behaviour creates traps, hurtful traps. So he, he warned them, but he also encouraged them. Verse 17, charge them that are wealthy in this, in this world, that they be not high-minded. You see, wealth can create this, this sense of superiority. Nor trust in uncertain riches, here today, gone tomorrow. But trust in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. There, there are other things than wealth. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to fellowship, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Uh, you know, and that's a little allusion to, to the foundations, the heaps of the foundations that were made in Old Testament times when, when some of the faithful priests asked for contributions to the temple. And the record says that, that all those contributions were heaped up as foundations. Be like that. Use the, what God has given you for the benefit of others. Open your home. Open your resources. Be rich towards God. And trust in the living God. Back in Revelation 2, that was missing. There was this self-declaration, this, this non-embarrassment. I don't need anything from God. What a state to be in. It's no wonder the Lord would spew them from his mouth. They believe that the wealth that they had received perhaps even came from God, was a blessing from God, and therefore were justified in keeping that wealth. But, but where was the sacrifice? Where was the generosity? Where was the commitment? And that self-satisfied, complacent indifference created this conceit. I am rich. Tragically, they had need of nothing, or so they thought. Now, the Lord is going to actually peel away this facade. But before he does, I want to just talk about this self-sufficiency. You know, we, we live in an age where young people are encouraged to get an education, get a good job, rise across the ranks. And, and that breeds a, an I can do attitude with the emphasis on the I can do. And I think it's an age which, in promoting self-sufficiency, leaves us to face the danger that we don't need anything from God. It's not until we go through life's trials and God deliberately ensures that we have the right trial for the right person, that we understand the weakness of mortality, we understand the, 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 the weakness of our frame, uh, our failings as we go through life, uh, that in the end, brothers and sisters, we understand that we need God in all things. That wasn't happening in this ecclesia. It wasn't happening. I don't need anything from God. And that wealth had deceived them. We need to be very, very careful in the way we handle what God has given us. So he peels off the covers. And you can imagine the ecclesia sitting there. Lovely dress this morning. Wonderful clothes. Nice jewellery. Plenty of money. Settling on their lees. God won't do this, God won't do that, Christ won't do that. And so I may give an exhortation perhaps that Christ is coming. Yes, very interesting. Now, how is the stock market today? 
The Lord is really coming. Yes, but did that invoice get paid today? That was where the emphasis was. And when the Lord pulled off the covers, it was a miserable picture. And you can imagine the gasp within that audience of this self-satisfied, wealthy group of people suddenly being exposed. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. It would have gone through, through, through the ecclesial meeting like a hot poker. Am I really like that? Am I really that wretched? It's the same word used that Paul used when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Wretchedness. And they knew not. They'd been blinded by the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of riches. And that's what can happen to us as well. We're doing okay, thank you. Yeah, but not doing too bad. In fact, compared to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, I reckon I'm doing pretty well. And that self-sufficiency bred this pride. Now, they had been warned about the true wealth in the epistle to the Colossians. Let's come back to Colossians chapter 1. They had been warned of this. Both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians talk about true wealth. And they had missed the point. So here it is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, in the preaching of the gospel, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where does true wealth lie? It's a glorious wealth, says Paul. But it lies in the manifestation of the qualities of Jesus Christ in us, which eventually will produce hope, which will eventually produce glory. That's true wealth. So the question we ask ourselves, the question I ask myself this morning, brethren and sisters, is, is, is Christ in us? Are his words in us? Is his character in us? He was full of grace and truth. Is that how we come across to our brethren and sisters? Full of grace and truth? Does Christ live in our hearts by faith? That's true wealth. True wealth indeed. Chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, For I, I would that ye knew what great conflict or agony I have for you and for them at Laodicea. So here we are with Laodicea again. And Paul had a great agony of mind, disturbed by the pressures upon these ecclesias. And he sought in verse 2 that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There it is, agonizing over these ecclesias. And one of the issues was concerning wealth. And he wanted the ecclesia to understand where true wealth was. And the word of God is like a mine shaft of the jewels. The enormous wealth of wisdom is a treasure, but it's hidden. And it needs uncovering, and it needs work to do so. You're not going to pick up diamonds on the surface. You've got to dig deeper. The riches of the full assurance of understanding. And that's why understanding and knowledge of the word of God is critical, isn't it? 
in developing Christ in us. Come across chapter 3. Let the word of Christ in verse 16 dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Or whatsoever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That is true wealth. Verse 24, knowing that the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. That's true wealth. True inheritance, true power. When we come back to Revelation chapter 2, it's disturbing that they had missed that. (coughs) I would hate for our Lord to describe me as wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. And I think that the ecclesia would have been shocked to learn that was the true state before the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart is deceitful above all things. When we examine ourselves, I don't think we do it honestly. Well, I I don't do it honestly. Getting that true, faithful understanding of our inner motives and our inner self is exceedingly difficult to do. We are very adept as humans of just pushing to the side those embarrassing things that we do and just ignoring those and maybe focusing on the things that we can do We're comfortable with those things, but we ignore our problems and our difficulties, our foibles and our bad habits. Wretched, poor, blind, miserable. And, of course, he adds the last one, naked. And we saw, didn't we, from yesterday, that that is the word picked up in Revelation 16 about our generation. Watch, Isardis. Don't be naked as Laodicea. And of all of the ecclesias the Lord could actually put together to describe our time, our challenges, our exhortation, it's those two ecclesias. We don't want to walk naked. So the Lord exposes our shame when he returns. Powerful exhortations, aren't they? So, is the Lord going to abandon that ecclesia? Well, well, he, he would be all rights to do so, couldn't he? written them off, but, but he, he was now going to seek a solution for them. What, what solution would you offer to an ecclesia like that? What, what is the antidote to this self-sufficiency and this blasé indifference? Well, it starts off in verse 18 this way. I counsel. You know, the Lord could have said, I command. The Lord could have said, I insist, but he's offering counsel. You you can take it or leave it. Counsel. He is the wonderful counselor of Isaiah chapter 9. He is wisdom who offers counsel and advice. And it's exactly the same with the truth today. We can take it or leave it, brethren and sisters. But it's good counsel, isn't it? Excellent counsel. It's going to cost you something. Come to Isaiah 55. Buying. Well, buying is used in Isaiah 55. To indicate effort. 
They had to rouse themselves from their indifference and make an effort. So here it is in Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho, everyone, not just Jews, everyone, not just Sardis, everyone, including Laodicea, everyone that thirsteth, so we're talking about water, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk, without money, without price, all your wealth, all your prestige. You don't actually need that, says Isaiah. You need water, you need food, but you don't need to buy it. So, so, so what is the buying? Which well, explained in verse 2. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Here's the cost. Hearken diligently to me. Eat that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Behold, I've given him for a witness to the people. That's the language of Laodicea. I'm a faithful and true witness, a leader and a commander of the people. So the effort, brethren and sisters, isn't going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time and diligence and commitment that's the cost are we prepared to do that we're going to leave this bible school infused hopefully by the association that we have together the power of the word of god discussed amongst us the question now comes what are we going to do with that is it just going to be a a faint week that we had in our life as go back to work and go back to our lives and and the busyness of life takes over. We need to expend our energies in inclining our ear. Come to Christ and hear and our soul shall live. And and even if we feel unworthy of that, in verse 6, seek ye Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return unto Yahweh. Repent, that's the the language of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Turn unto Yahweh and he will have mercy upon him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. That's our God. Gracious, merciful, willing to abundantly pardon if we turn to him with all our heart. It's never too late to do that, brothers and sisters. Never too late to do that. But that's the cost commitment and effort on our part. Let's come back to Revelation chapter 3. So he says, the first thing I want you to do is to buy of me gold tried in the fire. I want you to become like Smyrna, rich. I want you to be rich in faith, not not wealth. And we know, don't we, that that Gold, tried in the fire, is a symbol of tried faith. Be hot. (laughs) Be zealous. Be committed. Throw yourself back into ecclesial work. Throw yourself back into Bible study, Sunday school work, the education of your children, the family home. That's what I I counsel. That's what beats indifference, a desire to be committed, to be hot. And uh, as Brother Thomas points out, actually, he, he says that if, if you actually have faith and, and you begin to express that faith in your words and your actions, that is going to actually bring a contention for the faith. And that in itself is going to be striving against sin. 
And that's going to re-engage the battle once more. And this sort of blasé indifference will disappear with that. Increase your faith. Strengthen your faith. Try your faith. And he said, I want you to take white raiment. Come back to Colossians again. The, the raiment was a significant figure. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 8, but now ye also put off. The garment of the flesh has been taken off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's what needs to be put back on. They're walking around spiritually naked. Anger, wrath, filthy communication was present. Lying one to another was present. Their wealth had, had deceived them. Well, the Lord says, I want you to put on, back on that garment. Put Jesus Christ back on. And the qualities that he has of holiness, bowels of mercy, verse 12, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. That's what I want to see in your ecclesia. I want you to reapply that, that garment. Now, of course, we know that in that region there were the, the, uh, the garments made of black wool. They knew all about garments. Put those qualities back on. That's a challenge, isn't it, to correct your behaviour to that extent. We won't go to it, but it's based on Isaiah chapter 61, the garments of salvation and praise. That's what I want to see. And because the region was known for its I self, I want you to apply the word of God to your understanding. Get back to the scriptures, get back to the Bible, back to the readings. Challenge, isn't it? But that's the solution the Lord offered. Strengthen your faith and get that commitment back. Put on the qualities of goodness, holiness, righteousness and truth. And get your eyes back into the word of God. That's what we all need. I'm doing this, he said, out of love. It was the prerogative of God in old times, says Paul in Hebrews 12, for the father to chasten his sons. And that prerogative has now become the prerogative of Jesus Christ. Not only has he authority over all the angels, but he also has the authority now to direct trial, to direct problems, to chastise us out of love. He's been given that prerogative. And as many as I love, I will chasten. Uh, are we going through difficulties as an expression of the love of Jesus Christ? So he said... I want you to be zealous. I want you to be hot. The word zealio, we saw in our exhortation on Titus, be zealous of good works, same word. <coughs> Zeal, enthusiasm. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what needs to be part of our life. So, so, so as the Lord is standing there, you can hear in the background this constant knocking. And, and you know yourself that when you hear the knocking on the door, if it persists, you've got to answer that door. And the Lord is standing there at the door, and he's knocking. 
is knocking brethren and sisters. We're not going to turn to it this morning, but it's, it's based on the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, where the, where the bride is opening the door and seeking the bridegroom. The bridegroom is there. It's the language of the parable of our Lord. That when there's a knocking on the door, he will open immediately. And that's the challenge that we have. That knocking is persistent. And the explanation is given in the next verse. If any man hear my voice, he's calling beyond that door. Based on Proverbs chapter 8, where, where wisdom calls through the door. And hearing his voice, of course, is the exhortation he gave in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. He's the example, brethren and sisters. He's calling, he's knocking, he's asking us to open the door of our hearts and allow him to dwell in there by faith. Are we up to the challenge? And if we can overcome, just as he overcame, he, he, he overcame by faith in the power and trust of his father's greatness. He set the example. He's leading the way. And he is offering us, brothers and sisters, a place in the kingdom on his throne to sit with him. What an incredible promise that is. Absolutely undeserved by any of us here today. None of us deserve this calling. We've traversed seven ecclesias, brethren and sisters. We've seen their highs and their lows. We've been encouraged. We've been confronted. We've been sustained by the presence of the Lord who in our midst knows our works. We're invited to incline our ear and hear. We're invited to listen to every lesson in all of those seven ecclesias. If we can overcome our individual problems, if we can overcome our ecclesial problems, if we can overcome by faith and love the awful attractions of this world, the reward is absolutely stunning. To sit with him forevermore in that throne, to have that throne across the world, with us ruling the world in it.